Um, yeah, so I think I've met most of you, but I'll just, uh, by way of introduction, my name is Peter Fast, and I am the Deputy National Director of uh, Bridges for Peace Canada. Um, my wife, Deanna, and I, we lived in Israel for just over three years and been there many times before that. And what Bridges for Peace is, is an organization that really bridges the gap between Christians and Jews on the one side because of recognizing that the history has been quite painful, riddled with uh, Christian anti-Semitism, uh, which sounds like an oxymoron, of course, but um, with it, it is something that has been uh, vibrant and growing. It is still, even today, being taught all over the world um, in churches, um, often under the, the guise of replacement theology, which is the belief that the church has replaced Israel, so that uh, because the Jews rejected Jesus, all the blessings and the covenant that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have been transferred to the church, and the Jews have been left with the curses. And that theology uh, produced Christian anti-Semitism, um, where we, when you study that throughout history, you have most of the church fathers um, you know, making comparisons. Jews are like the offspring of Satan or Lucifer. They cannot be saved. They are cursed by God. They are hated by God. Um, all kinds of things. And of course, this transgress, uh, trans, uh, you know, transgresses throughout 17 centuries. So it's not like it's just one morning a bunch of Christians w woke up and decided to hate Jews. But this is an ongoing thing. Um, the creation of the state of Israel uh, shook the whole Christian world. Um, because for centuries, how the church and different denominations justified um, uh, the humiliation of Jews... The, uh, keeping them in a humili uh, humiliation, uh, a state of humiliation or poverty or outright hate or stealing their things or killing them in the name of Christ, which all of these things happened throughout uh, the 17th centuries of the church. And I don't want to bash the entire church because there were Christians and there were congregations uh, that rejected that. Um, but we find that in Roman Catholicism. We find that in the Protestant um, uh, church. Um, but th these things... Uh, which seemed to just be like the common thing, like everybody just believed it, everybody just taught it. Um, it was, you know, teaching um, and, the, and the Bible teaching was very controlled. Most of Europe was illiterate, so it was a very controlled uh, bit. Um, but when, in 1948, when this, the modern rebirth of the, the state of Israel happened, it shook the whole world. Because for 17 centuries, the church had looked at that one thing, the Jews don't have a state, so therefore that's proof. That is, our, that is our proof in this world that God has rejected them. The Jews don't have a nation, and they are wandering around aimlessly, and they're being persecuted by everybody and, and kept in a state of humiliation. That's proof that God has cursed them, and the church is in a, in a, in a position of, of triumph or victory. Well, in 1948, that just shook the entire world. I mean, we're speaking of something that couldn't even be conceived. I mean, two, almost 2,000 years went by where the, where the Jews did not have a, a, have a nation. They were scattered all over the world. They retained their faith. They stayed together, but they were scattered abroad. They, at, in most of the countries that they lived in, they had very, very few rights. Like I said, they were kept, in, um, by every European nation, they were kept in a deliberate state of poverty. Um, the Jewish communities living in the Muslim world were kept in a state of poverty and second class. Uh, the, the Jizya tax, the Dimitude, which is a second class kind of uh, uh, class that places an infidel in that you just pay for basically protection is, the, is the, what it was. And the Jews in the Muslim world were kept in this, in this state and in the Christian world were com uh, persecuted and, and denied uh, jobs and denied 
livelihoods, they couldn't own land, they couldn't do, it was all of these things that happened and then um, all of a sudden, boom, there's this, this nation of Israel in two millennia, it, it, it hadn't happened. The only people, I mean, Jewish people every year at Passover, um, they say next year in Jerusalem and for 2,000 years, no matter where they were in the world, they were saying that. Every day, the, a Jewish person prays three times a day and they face Jerusalem. Uh, every uh, Tisha B'Av is the remembrance, and that happens in August, typically in the, with the Gregorian calendar. But Tisha B'Av is the, the ninth of Av, the Hebrew month, and that is where they remember the destruction of the first and second temple. And Jews have been faithfully doing these things for 2,000 years. Jews may have been scattered all over the world, but they never forgot their roots. They never forgot uh, the place where they were from, their, their ancestry, their, their faith. And it's, it, it's very important to note that the land of Israel, the physical land, has never ever been emptied of Jews. So even with the, the devastating um, uh, results uh, of the Jewish people suffering under the, the, Roman, the failed Roman revolts in the first and second century, um, the, and where thousands, hundreds of thousands were killed and enslaved and scattered, uh, the land was never emptied of Jews. That's very important. So there was always a physical connection, sometimes <coughs> minimal, Sometimes 5,000 Jews in the land. But there's always been a physical connection and a spiritual connection, um, no matter where they were. And then all of a sudden, in 1948, um, there's this new state, this new rebirth of this Jewish state. And the Jews defy everything. Like, it's, it's an incredible thing. Like, when you look at any other civilization, <coughs> any civilization, any people group that has been cut off in history from its ancestral land, or when other groups move in, there's always assimilation. There's, uh, there's con when there's conquests and enslavement, um, people change. And, and they, um, they're not the same of what they used to. For instance, the people who live today in Egypt are not the same people as the ancient Egyptians, if that makes sense. The British or the Germans, they're not the same as the Germanians. You know, nobody uses hieroglyphics. <clears throat> nobody worships the ancient gods. Their dialect, their cult, their customs, their culture, every, all of that has faded away. We only know about it because we dig it up out of the earth. The Jews, though, have retained all of this. No matter where they are in the world, they don't fully, they don't assimilate. Um, they have tried at times, but they, even when in their assimilation, they don't intermarry. They maintain their faith. They maintain their customs, even to the point of death. And nation after nation, king after king, has tried at times to wipe them out, to assimilate them, to change them. And they are the people that will not die. Like, as a nation, they will not die. And every civilization, when you look, it, it hits its zenith. Like, it rises in power, and then it, you, it always crumbles. Every single one. All of history, is, is, it follows that pattern. And, it's, you know, if the Lord tarries for centuries... The United States will also do that. It'll, the United States is a superpower right now. If the Lord tarried for a few hundred years, it will cease to be a superpower and somebody else will take its place. That's always happened. But the Jews Ching, have defied that. The Jews have seen this. They were farmers. They were nomads. They came under with Abraham. They settled and then they hit their zenith and then they, went, then they were destroyed and then they returned and hit their zenith and then were destroyed and then 2,000 years later and then all of a sudden, boom, they're a superpower in the Middle East. Like, they, they actually defy the normal cycle of nations. And it doesn't mean that when nations change, it's because a great slaughter or war has to happen, but just nations change. The pe you know, people change, values change, 
And there have been changes within the Jewish people, but not the changes to change who they are as Jews. They've, and then you look at the, the language. No other nation in history has been scattered and sent abroad or taken from their ancestral homeland for 2,000 years, then returned and then revived their language. Nobody. That would be like the equivalent of 80 million, almost 80 million people in Egypt today ceasing to speak Arabic and everybody starts writing in hieroglyphs again and speaking ancient Egypt. Like nobody, that's never happened, ever. People study dead languages and some people learn how to speak them, but not a, not a culture, not a nation, not a, an entire society. Well, the Jewish people up until 1948, I mean, he, when, when they settled, resettled in the land, they brought German and French and English and all these languages but uh, Eliezer ben Yehuda, the father of modern Hebrew, said, we have to speak Hebrew. This is our ancient language. And his son, this was in the 30s, his son was the first he Jewish person in 2,000 years to grow up with Hebrew being their, natives, their one language, their native tongue. And Hebrew, which was only reserved really for the synagogue, now became this like everyday language. And there are some Jewish people that really bucked against that because how can you take the sacred language of God, the language that is written in the Bible, and then using that language, ask, like, where's the washroom, right? Like, where's the toilet? Or, like, or to do commerce. Like, there were literally, like, like many Eastern European Jews that really had a hard time with that, with using this language for every day. They didn't want to. And still, even in the, the ultra-Orthodox, some of their ultra-Orthodox circles, they, they refuse to speak Hebrew day-to-day. Uh, -day. They still do Yiddish. But they'll do the Hebrew in the synagogues, and if I mean if they're forced, they'll speak Hebrew. But they try not to in their communities. So it's quite amazing. But Israel, this whole story, and that's what we're going to go through. Where we're at today, and we don't have time, of course, to cover the whole thing. These are this is a 12-hour lecture series. Um, well, minimum, I could stretch this into 30 probably. Um, that I've, I've I've given at a number of I've given at a number of seminaries. Um, and it literally walks us youth from Abraham to today. And it follows the Jews in Israel wherever they go. So you also learn about Islamic eschatology and theology and the Crusades and the early church fathers and all of this stuff. So it puts it into context in a chronological line. But what we're going to be going over today is, um, I'm just going to say a few things about this period and then jump into World War I and lay a foundation as a legal case for Israel. Uh, existing today um, because this is a, a legal and biblical but this is an incredible thing because most people when they uh, uh, look at Israel they just they go headlong into 1967 and on and it's very confusing and there's the, there's a lot of facts that are distorted and the, the worst part about it it's like historical sabotage is there's just huge amounts of stuff that's just left out of the conversation so and then you have all kinds of people yelling and, and claiming these big words like international law. Israel's breaking international law. Well, if you find out what international law is, that's, that's not true. And it's, 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 it, those are political statements, but they're charged statements and they sound really bad. Like if you're breaking the law, you should be arrested. Well, you know, it's, and so in our day and age, we're in a, a, a war for truth. Really, we are. And it, beyond just Israel, it's like anything that God calls his, or he um, says this is good, uh, whether it be marriage, whether it be human life before birth or at the end of life, our covenant relationship, the church, any of this stuff, anything God chooses, Satan and the enemy just wants to destroy it, um, pervert it, and, um, and use 
the wickedness and the fallen nature of man to try to disrupt it. And we know at the end of the day that's not going to happen. But he has tried over and over and over with Israel. And he's clever because um, in so many areas, he's, at, he's being successful within the evangelical church. Like that's like the mind-blowing bl thing, right? You would expect non-believers to act like non-believers and to say things like that. But when you have people that profess to be men and women of the word claiming this like ridiculous stuff and, and they'll swear on it. They'll go to the grave on it. It's the level of deception. And so we're in a war on truth. And if you've ever seen, I love the scene from Star Wars, right? Where Obi-Wan is like, you know, these are not the droids you're looking for when he says that. And he does it the forest to the stormtrooper. Well, that's what this gentleman did. Uh, uh, Emperor uh, Hadrian, Hadrianus. The Jews, and this, I just want to lay this foundation, and then we're going to jump way ahead, almost 2,000 years, because we're still, the world is still suffering from this Hadrian-like plague, this delirium of, of Hadrian. And he, he was the first historical revisionist. You know, you really, anybody, before Hadrian, you don't really have anybody in history coming along and trying to rewrite somebody else's history as a lie and then change it and then preach it to the world as like truth. Um, prior to this, you'll notice, second Jewish revolt, there was a first. And the temple was destroyed. This is the, That was the one that Jesus prophesied about. Not one stone will be left on another. And, and it's amazing because even the rabbis say the reason that Jerusalem was destroyed is because justice ceased to be within. There was no righteous men. That's why. And, and, and brother was fighting against brother. And so even the, the rabbis have looked back and said, and have looked at that and said, you know, we had it coming. Like the, we were in a bad state and a, a very uh, dire state and we paid the price. And so the temple was destroyed and the Romans believed that what stirred the Jews to revolt, because uh, tell you the truth, if any one of us had lived back then, we probably would have very, found it incredibly hard to love the Romans. Even if we knew Jesus, like the Romans were awful, awful people, right? Crucifying, um, beating, taking whatever they wanted, um, polluting the sanctuary of the temple, just constantly, like they were a blasphemous presence. And, um, but the, the Romans believed that what rallied the Jews to rebellion was the temple. You know, this temple unifies them, it brings them all together. So we'll get rid of it and then there won't be any more rebellion. So they destroyed the temple in 70 in the, in the, in the conflict and the siege. And then look and in 70, look at the dates, like 62 years later, there's a second Jewish revolt. And um, under Bar Kokhba, who was actually a false messiah, uh, the top rabbi of the time declared Bar Kokhba because his name means the son of the star. And he connected that with the prophecy of the, the star um, being uh, from the sign of Judah. And he said, Bar Kokhba is the messiah. Well, and Bar Kokhba is like, I'm going to kill all the Romans. So the whole nation was like, rose up, he must be. And at first he was winning. Like he wiped out the 22nd Legion, like completely wiped them out. And so he had a lot of momentum, a lot of success at the beginning, and the entire nation rose up. It was even worse than the first revolt. And Emperor Hadrian, this man was a genius. He was a linguist, and he was the first um, emperor to sport a beard and make it popular. And he was a tourist. He was a tourist. He actually went to virtually every single province of the entire empire touring. He and so he was in uh, the nation of Israel, which would have been known as the provinces of Judea and Samaria and Galilee and Edomia in the north, sorry, in the south. And he uh, wanted to Hellenize the Jews. And somebody tried that earlier, 
uh, Antiochus Epiphanes with the whole Hanukkah story. Antiochus tried to uh, Hellenize the Jews. The Jews rose up, the Maccabees, in revolt and wiped them out. They like won. And it's an incredible thing. So we have almost like history repeating itself. We have this other pagan ruler. He tries to Hellenize the Jews. And Hellenize really means he's going to push the Jews to accept all the pagan gods. And, um, and also Hellenism was the worship of the body and the worship of pleasure. Literally, they physically worship this stuff. Um, so even, even to the degree that if a baby was deformed, they would kill them often. They would just literally abandon them out to die or be eaten by animals, like, because that wasn't beautiful. And, or if somebody was sick, they would be put away. So it's like, this was Hellenism, which is completely against the scriptures. It's, and so this is what this man tried to do. And um, it pushed the Jews to revolt. And so, he, first of all, before the revolt, he Hellenized Jerusalem. So the temple had, of course, been destroyed. And what did he build in the place of the temple? A temple to Jupiter, the Roman god, right? The chief Roman god. He's, he's just getting under the nails of the, of the Jews, right? He's just trying, he's pushing them. And he, and he turned Jerusalem right here into look like a Greek polis. Or, and, and the 10th legion was stationed here, temple to Aphrodite. He made a cardo with a forum. So this doesn't look anything like uh, the, the Jewish city or the traditional city of Jerusalem. This looks, he set this up to look like any city in the Roman Empire and to Hellenize it. Temple of Jupiter, he put a statue of himself. I mean, this is, this rubs the Jews the wrong way in every possible way. The Jews, I mean, the scriptures tell them not to have graven images. So he puts a statue of himself as a god. He deifies himself. And then he builds all these kinds of temples in their, deliberately in their holy spots where the temple was. And he does this, and the Jews just can't stand for it. And then what he does is after this, um, after the revolt, when he crushes the revolt and about 600,000 Jews are killed, he destroys about a thousand villages and towns and cities. Like he just devastates the land. His soldiers sowed salt into the soil so nothing would grow. They literally clip, like cut down every tree. And it was this revolt that it, it goes almost 2,000 years. The land just stays barren. Mm. And in Deuteronomy, it's, it's an incredible prophecy when he says, when you're out of the land, this land will be like a wasteland. And men of foreign tongues will come here and testify when you're out of the land, how horrible this place is. And but when I bring you back, this land will, the desert will bloom. This land will prosper. And it's incredible. Even the Arabs... I called it a cursed land, and many of them were willingly, willingly selling it to the Jews twice or triple the price because they're like, we can't do anything with this land. It's swamps and it's malaria-infested. Have it. We'll just charge you four times the value of it. And then the Jews came in and drained the swamps, and then they, I mean, it's incredible. They're, they're, Israel is the number one exporter of, of tulips and flowers in the year, more than Holland now, and they're growing them in the desert. So it's, it's incredible. So Hadrian, um, as to teach the Jews a lesson, um, because of the end of the Second Jewish Revolt, he renames the city. So this is historical revisionism. He renames Jerusalem Aelia, uh, uh, Aelia Capitolina. And if you see his name, Aelia. So he names it the city after his name. But Capitolina is the Capitoline, the, is the temple, the great temple in Jerusalem to Jupiter, the Capitoline, uh, Jupiter Capitoline. So he, named, he takes away Jerusalem. So it's, you, you know, these are not the droids you were looking for. So now anybody that like comes and asks, you know, where's the way to Jerusalem? Jerusalem, I've never heard that before. I know where Aelia Capitolina is. 
And even the Arabs, the Muslims, from the 7th century when they come in here, way up, they would refer to the city as Ilya, Ilya, like Alia, from Alia. So Alia Capitolina, and then to teach them, uh, he renames um, the land, the entire land, this is the kicker, Syria-Palestina. So it's a land full of Jews. There's, of course, Greeks and stuff, but his enemy are the, the Jews. And he renames the land Syria-Palestina. What is Palestine? What is that? Palestine. What does it mean? The land of the Philistines. So he names Jews Palestinians. Okay? And, the, and he does this deliberately. I mean, he, he really... The, that Syria-Palestina is Latin, and it's, it's, it's a terrible translation of the Philistines, but he... Uh, he uses that term because the Philistines, they're not Arabs. They're, of course, Islam didn't even exist. They're, in, they're Indo-Europeans, more likely from Crete. And they tried to invade Egypt. They, were, they failed there. And then they took the coast, Gaza, and they had these five cities, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, Gaza, and Gath. And they settled there. And they were always like the thorn in the flesh to the Jews. And we read those stories that went right with through the judges to Saul to King David. Like They were never like quite... They, they were kind of conquered, but they always stayed there. And they, were they weren't they were wiped out until Nebuchadnezzar invaded the land and destroyed Jerusalem in 586. He, he, he conquers the whole coast and like lays it to waste. And we never hear about... And that's where Philistine culture and archaeology just ends. So they were completely obliterated. So, but it, so it's, he, he uses it to just like put salt in the wound. You know, the Philistines were your ancient enemy. Well, I'm going to rename your land their land, the Philistine land. And it's like, and, and, but this is, he's the emperor of the world, and this sticks. This historical revisionism, it's never been Israel, it's never been Judah, it's Syria-Palestina. And the, the Jews never uh, drop uh, the, the, their reference to the land Eretz Israel, the land of Israel, they always call it that. But this sticks, and it, it was just a political word. Uh, Hadrian, I mean, he died three years later. He never really did anything with the land. Nobody ever did anything with the land. It was occupied by many other people. When you go from the Romans, you go to the Byzantines, then you come to the Muslims, and the, the Muslims have a half a dozen different, the Mamluks and the, the um, Abbasids and all these different groups, and not all of them are Arab. And then the Turks come along, and the Turks aren't Arab. The Crusaders were there. Like, all these people uh, uh, occupy the land. And it's amazing when you look through it, um, nobody really called it Palestine. I mean, the, the term was there, but the Crusaders called it the Kingdom of Jerusalem and the County of Tripoli. And these, or the, the, uh, the, the Mamluks called it the, the Greater Syria or Kole Syria, an extension of Syria, um, the, or the, the Caliphate of Syria. They used these, uh, or the Caliphate of Damascus. They used different references. But that, that term really didn't come back until the British... Is, um, I took it at the end of World War One, and um, okay, so we're gonna zoom right ahead. So this is this thing. We're in a war for truth, and we are still facing it today because, of course, the narrative um, today puts Jews. And now, there's people that identify themselves as Palestinian Arabs, but that term Palestinian has been hijacked. Um, up until, really up until the 60s, um, the Arabs never called themselves Palestinians. They were proud at being, of being Arab. And they even say it in their own writings and in their own speeches. 
And actually today, if you, if you were to ever like look through their TV from everything from cooking shows to music videos to interviews, once in a while it leaks out, oh, like we're really all Saudis or Egyptians. Um, and, or the moment that we take this land, it will be immediately absorbed into the greater caliphate of Syria. Like, so this, uh, the essence of this Palestine, uh, this land really doesn't resonate. Um, it's not their first love, so to speak. Their first love would be Mecca and Medina. And there's a whole story thing behind that, which we're not going to get into, but th this is going to be making this, this case of, of how history is, has progressed and prior to 48. Because some amazing things happened that are ignored in the entire conversation about Israel today. And this just shows you also God's hand working behind the scenes. I said, you know, God, when, when you have the, when you look at the prophets and you go even back to Moses, you know, in, in Leviticus, he's like, when, when basically when you're sinning, um, there will be, there's consequences, there's curses, but I will not leave you to utter destruction. Abhor you. I will bring you back. I will restore you. He's God's faithful. Um, and as a faithful parent, so to speak, he must discipline his child. But he's not going to kill all of his children. He's not going to destroy them. He's not going to leave them to utter destruction. He wants them to follow him. And this covenant over and over is, uh, is declared as everlasting and eternal. And that doesn't change when we get into the New Testament. And um, I'll just read... A section here from Psalm 105 and when we understand covenant I mean it gives us assurance this is the thing if God would change if God would cut off Israel from being his people we have no hope because then he could eat like there's there's no we would have no assurance if he would cut off Israel for disobeying well we disobey all the time I mean the, ch the church has a lot of blood on their hands so maybe he he broke that covenant in the time period of the Crusades I mean, if, the, if there was a time to break it, it was in the period of the Crusades when they were like murdering children in the, in the streets of Jerusalem and wading in blood, ankle-deep blood to the Holy Sepulchre and like just slaughtering everybody that they came across in the name of Christ. So we have to look at, this is not man. Man is not responsible for, um, for all the conditions of this covenant. It's God. It sits with God. And God is the author and the perfecter of covenant. He engaged Abraham. Abraham didn't engage him. But the, we have Psalm 105 would say, so he, uh, starting in verse 7, He is the Lord our God, His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers His covenant forever, the word which He commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant which He made with Abraham and His oath to Isaac and confirmed it to Jacob for a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as the allotment of your inheritance. The physical land, this isn't pie in the sky, spiritual stuff. The physical land had substance and meaning. And Abraham wasn't just solely looking for this land in the sky. He was led to a real land with the borders all declared. And this was to be a beacon to the world. Isaiah eleven twelve describes that a banner will be raised. And when God gathers in back the, his people from the four corners of the world, and it's, a banner is raised to the nations. All the nations will see this. So there's, there's value in this, this land. The land isn't magical, but it's, like it said, the allotment of the inheritance. It's the only part of real estate in the world. God has said, this is mine. I've put my name into it, and I'm giving it to one group of people. And, he is, and he's doing all of this, not because the Jews were better than anybody else. And the scripture tells us that. It's not because of your numbers 
or your strength. It is because of his holy name. Ezekiel 36, he says, because you've been profaning my name in the nations, because they're in the nations, not in Israel, and the nations will make fun of them and say, your God is, has no power because your God promised you would be in the land. Well, if you're in the nations, your God must be weak. He's a liar. So God says, I have care for my holy name. It's not Israel. I, it's my holy name. So I'm going to bring you back to your land. I'm going to plant you in the land, and then I'm going to cleanse you and restore you. And, and there's this relationship. Well, so this is the exciting thing. We, I've heard some, many people say, I wish I lived in Bible times. We do live in Bible times. Because what the prophets penned and saw in, their, in these visions and heard the, the, the voice of the Lord, um, we are living it right now. If you go to Israel, what you see is what the prophets saw with their spiritual mind, their spiritual eyes. We are seeing it right now. We are in the midst of Bible times. And it's amazing. God in the scriptures uses pagan kings. He uses righteous men. He uses men that kind of seem righteous at times and then really fail at other times. Um, they're really righteous and then they really fail at the end of their life. And, and like he uses, he uses adulterers and murderers and thieves. And, and so in this case, it, what we're gonna, he uses Muslims, he uses secular Jews, he uses Christian pastors, he uses religious Jews, he uses prime ministers and generals. He even uses anti-Semites. Like, it's, it's incredible. To God, God will not be derailed. It's like we can either look at this and just say, oh, it's by chance, or God's hand is in it. And still, what I said at the very beginning, that's a long way to, to stretch this, to say by chance, when this has only happened once. Out of all history, nobody's ever done this before. No civilization. It's not like everybody got the same text message to return <laughs> here. Like, it's, it's, it really is incredible. And the, and the characters that are that he uses in this are amazing. And so as we go through a little bit of this, I'm gonna I'll bring up, and I hope you can see the hand of God working behind the scenes because it, at times it, people tried to derail it and prevent it, but all kinds of people got behind it. So in World War One, World War One saw an amazing thing. It saw the end of 400 years of Turkish occupation in the land of Israel. Um, it is worthy to note that many, many, many people have occupied this land, and I mentioned it at the beginning. Everything from the, you know, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the, the Romans, the Greeks, the Byzantines, the different uh, Muslim uh, factions or empires, the Crusades, uh, the Crusaders, the Turks, the British, all these people there, not one of these nations ever made this land uh, their sovereign land or, their, or, or moved a seat of government there, ever. The only people that that land has ever been sovereign to, or, and they've had their seat of government there, is the Jewish people. Jerusalem is their eternal capital. So, for instance, when the British were there, where's their seat of government? London. When the Turks are there, where's their seat of government? Istanbul. When the Muslims, you have Cairo, you have Baghdad. Uh, the Crusaders, you have Rome. The Byzantines, you have Constantinople. The Romans, you have Rome. The Greeks, you have Athens. Um, you, like the... Babylonians, it's Babylon. The Assyrians, it's Nineveh. Like it's every, it's an outpost. It's like this distant outpost, but it's very strategic, which is why everybody wants to be there because it's a land bridge between Africa, Asia, and Europe. It's a, it's a vital, very strategic place. Um, but everybody, you know, nobody did anything with it. Nobody turned it into anything of real value, um, but the Jews. And when you combine all of Jewish sovereignty in this land. When the Jews were sole rulers, I mean, you're getting up to about 700 years 
a sole Jewish leadership uh, ruling. When you add into other things, like the, the period of, of, of Jews being there, you have almost 4,000 years. Um, but when you add in all the, even when they were like, when Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah returned, they were kind of a client king. So they didn't have 100% independence, but they still could govern their everyday lives. When you add in all of this, you have almost 1,200 years of Jewish ruling in the land. So it's like nobody's ruled there that long than them. Um, so what we get at the end of World War One, in the midst of World War One, is Turkey controls the Ottoman Empire, and they begin to weaken, and they join the side of the Austro-Hungarian, the German uh, side, and we have on the other side the Britain, France, the U.S. comes in a little bit later in the uh, war, and Russia ends up joining, and so you have World War One, and Britain at the beginning of the war. Britain has a serious problem. They start running out of acetone, which is a chemical used for bombs. I mean, you can't fight a war in modern war without bombs. And this is a serious problem for them. Well, Chaim Wiseman is a biochemist and he's a Zionist. He's a Jewish man and a, and a Zionism, really, in, its, in a nutshell, isn't a conspiracy. It's not trying to start Armageddon. It's, it's the, the belief that the Jews have the sovereign right to live in their ancestral homeland and self-determination like any other people group in the world. That's really what it is. There's political Zionism and then there's biblical Zionism as well. I like to say God is a Zionist. I mean, like when you look, when you read in Psalms and it's, and if I forget my, you know, left hand, if I forget Jerusalem, may my left hand forget it's how to work. And by the rivers of Babylon we wept. Like that's Zionism. It's yearning to return and um, to the land. So Chaim Wiseman steps in and he develops uh, a substitute for acetone and he basically saves the whole day like he literally saved Britain for the war he developed like it's like it'd be like coming out with like cracking the at splitting the atom and having that be like just something like completely life-changing so he becomes a he's basically a British hero and he's an aristocrat very very smart biochemist should give it away and he's um, he moves and li uh, moves to the UK in 1910 uh, he's German background, and I uh, studied at the University of Manchester. And he, he teaches there, and he, but he becomes, because of this whole thing with the acetone, he, he develops these incredible connections with uh, members of the government. And he starts to kind of lobby on behalf of the, of the Zionists, which the Zionism at this time has already has, goes back to the 1860s, uh, modern Zionism, when hundreds of thousands of Jews started returning to the land. And there were some things that uh, prompted the, the Aliyah, the return, was the rise in anti-Semitism. The father of modern Zionism, Herzl, Theodor Herzl, who was an Austrian uh, journalist, he was a Jew, um, but very secular. And he just believed, and he, he witnessed this horrific anti-Semitic trial happening in Paris, the Dreyfus Affair, and it just convinced, where a, 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 a highly decorated officer was declared a spy for Germany, and it all came out, he wasn't, but he was just because he was Jewish. And he was thrown into prison and all of this stuff. And then the Parisians of Paris were chanting death to the Jews and all of this. And Theodore Herzl witnessed that because he was a journalist. And he really, it impacted him to, to the point of, we need a nation. Like, we, it is time. We, we cannot depend upon these European governments protecting us because they never will. And, the, uh, and it's a horrific thing because these European <laughs> governments would protect their other civil citizens but not the Jews. And the, 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 obviously, the, 
the, the huge form of that devastation is in the Holocaust, where six million European Jews are all murdered, regardless of their citizenship or where they're living, they're all killed because of their, their, and murdered because they're Jews. And so Herzl got it right. Um, but, so the, but Herzl died early. He died in 1898 before this could really uh, gather uh, momentum. But his, his vision uh, didn't die. And there was many people that worked on his behalf. So Chaim Wiseman started lobbying to the government. And this really gained momentum, um, both with the, with the Christian world and the Jewish world. But the, the Jewish population of Britain was also very divided. There was different perspectives on Zionism. There were Jews that favored Zionism. They, they said, you know, we're Jews. This is our uh, ancestral homeland, the land of the Bible. This is where our history is. This is where we should be. Yes, we need to, we need to have a, a land. And they also saw the, the weakening of the Turkish Empire, which was controlling that land. And this is up for grabs. Like, this land will eventually be up for grabs. And if Britain wins... Britain will have this land. This will be the first time in 2,000 years that we'll, this will, it'll be possible to, to start to create a Jewish state there. Because Herzl petitioned uh, Germany he pet, uh, to intervene. He petitioned the Turks, um, and they r wouldn't do anything or couldn't do anything. So there were Jews that favored Zionism. There were Jews that were in favor of settlement, but not nationhood. They said, well, you know, yes, it is our ancestral homeland. We should move back there. We should develop it. We should build cities. But we, maybe we shouldn't have a nation, like a, an actual government or a nation. They were kind of on the fence. And then there was a, a, also some, uh, some Jews that were very opposed to Zionism. And, and they were in favor of assimilation. And they looked at the fact that, you know, we've been living in Europe for centuries. Um, the, you know, we've assimilated. There's a, you know, the German Jews were more German than the Germans. French, like it is incredible. There were, the Enlightenment period, there were some of the best, most educated people in Europe were Jews. Why? Because they were all raised with uh, to be literate. Like that's one of the biggest things. They were the most literate people. Still, even today, per capita, Jewish people are the most literate in the world. Um, they just education and reading and study is like a focal point. It's like that's it's right at the forefront. So there was many Jews that said, you know, we shouldn't go have a nation because it will look like we're being less British or, or um, you know, we have it good here. It's very comfortable. That's the Middle East. It's desert. There's Bedouins. You know, they ride camels like we drive cars. Um, we go to Oxford and Cambridge. Why would we go to Palestine? You know, like this, this desert backwater of a, of a nation. And it's interesting that, and that, you know, Lucian Wolf was the one who spurred this him and Chaim Wiseman really butted heads. They hated each other um, because they're complete polar opposites. And um, this obviously failed. And um, the, the greatest failure of it was the Holocaust. It proved Jews could not assimilate. It proved Jews could uh, do anything possible and it wouldn't be enough. Because Jews could be hated for being poor. Jews could be hated for being rich. Jews could be hated for being uh, atheists. Jews could be hated for being too religious. Jews could, like Jews could be will be hated for anything. That's like anti-Semitism, it, it goes beyond just racism. It's you know in communist most of the communist party, a lot of them were Jews, and they're all atheists. But communists, uh, communism per heavily persecuted the Jewish people, and did awful things, the pogroms and all of this stuff under communism. And um, 
and so all the stereotypes. So this game the, ended up gaining the most favor, meant most of these people would go uh, become Zionists, and this would kind of fade out. Although, I mean, even today, you have uh, Jewish people that uh, have a skewed view of what Zionism is, and they're, it's, yeah, it's kind of shameful. Um, but Lucian Wolf wouldn't win, and uh, Chaim Wiseman would um, uh, gain the, the support from the U U United Kingdom government. And it's incredible, like, just the, the, the ends of the earth to, to, what, to what he went to, to, to get in with the, the foreign secretary and, um, and um, meet with these people and the prime minister and all of this stuff. And it's incredible that many of these people listened to him and got behind him. Why? Because they were Christians. Um, Lord Arthur Balfour, the foreign secretary who did, made up the famous Balfour Declaration, was a, a, a Christian. And he believed in the Bible, and he supported the Jews, and he believed that God, God would see these prophecies come uh, through. Uh, David Lloyd George, the Prime Minister at the time of the Balfour Declaration, once again, a Christian, a Bible-believing Christian um, that believed in this. Um, and we have all these incredible pastors. Um, Theodore Herzl, the father of modern Zionism, his closest friend, was a Christian pastor who, at the first Zionist Congress in Basel, Switzerland, um, there were two non-Jews there, and it, one of his friends, this Christian pastor was there, uh, Blackstone, and he was called a Christian Zionist. So the first ter time that word is used, Christian Zionist, wasn't a Christian labeling himself as a Christian Zionist, it was a Jew giving him that title because he saw this incredible thing. And he, he talks about when, when Herzl met Blackstone, he was so like dumbfounded because he walked into his office and he said all he had was Bibles. Like he collected Bibles and studied the Bible and he had built like uh, scale models of the temple and he had all like just loved the Jewish people and had this like fervor of, of uh, that God was going to see prophecy um, fulfilled. So in, in World War I, so you saw uh, up to this point, we saw the Turks there and we have the assassination of the Archduke Ferdinand, right? And his wife, that's the last photo of them getting into the car and an assassin from Sarajevo uh, murdered them. Uh, shot them both, and it, it created this deadlock where uh, really uh, the Austro-Hungary uh, demanded um, from Serbia that um, the man would be turned over and all of these um, monies paid. Serbia basically said no, and that sparked the war. So Austro-Hungary declared war, and then all the allies of Serbia. So this is what started World War I, although for decades before this, all the European powers were positioning themselves and arming themselves. So it was just the, this was the spark that shot the cannon, really. Um, so when this happened, Britain goes to war. And the outbreak of World War I, this is what the, this is what the Europe looked like. Very, very simple. And Austria-Hungary, these are all national groups living within them. Poles, Ukrainians, Slavs, Czechs, Italians, Slovenians, Croats, Serbs, Romanians, Ukrainians, all this. Like, and it was very, very simple, unlike today. Um, so we have these empire states um, going to war, uh, an incredibly bloody war, with millions, tens of millions killed, and Turkey goes on the side of the, of the Germans, and they lose. Um, but while the war is going, we have this incredible thing of Jewish immigration. So Jews keep immigrating there. Um, and developing the land. Some pictures here, they start planting fields, they start draining swamps, um, and they, get, they start turning this land into a, a very uh, fertile place. Um, the, 
you know, when Mark Twain in the 1830s, he goes through the land and he says there's hardly anybody there. And, and he, it's actually quite comical. And they, they pretty much figure about the time of the, the beginning of the 20th century, there's about 600,000 people living in the entire breadth of the land. Today there's 8.1 million. Um, so it's just exploded. But at the, from the time of 1867, the, the majority or the, of, of the population of Jerusalem was Jewish. So already it, it had just changed. And what, um, the, Jewish, the Jewish National Fund and other agencies started buying up the land because a lot of it was just state land. And a lot of it was owned by absentee Turkish landlords that weren't even living there. And they had squatters and peasants working their fields or just squatting on their land, like Bedouin groups that were just there. So yet there were Bedouins and there were Arabs living in the land. There were Jews living in the land. There were Russians, transplanted Europeans, um, Armenians. There was different groups of people, of course. The greater of those two populations were Muslim, Arab, and, and the Jews. But... We have, a, it starts the dichotomy of, of the land and, and the, the demographics begin to change. And Heim Wiseman began to have incredible influence with, um, like I said, Lord Arthur Balfour and David Lloyd George. And it got, gets to a point that um, Britain knows they're going to win the war. And they um, basically say, yeah, let's, we'll make a Jewish state. I wish it was that simple. They do say it, but there's some things behind the scenes that we'll cover. So this is quite amazing. So this is, this is Lord Arthur Balfour here, and this is a copy of the Balfour Agreement. And it's, it's amazing that at this time, 1917, the, the Jewish, the Zionists, literally believed that they could have a Jewish state and, they, and, and live side by side in complete peace with the Arabs. They, they, they saw no conflict with this. They, they saw, like, we're neighbors. Like, we've been doing it for decades. And at this time, there, there was a lot of peace between the two. There were some rumblings from um, being stirred up in some of the Arab ranks, but uh, on the, on, you know, when you co compare it and look at it, um, most Jews living in the land got along with the Arabs, and most Arabs living in the land got along with the Jews. Um, so you can see the care that is brought forward into this, because um, it also, the care was to consider the rights of those already also living in the land. So it says, I have much pleasure in conveying to you on behalf of His Majesty's government, the following declaration of sympathy with Jewish Zionist aspirations, uh, which has been submitted to and approved by the cabinet. His, quote, His Majesty's government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object, object. It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. I should be grateful if you would bring this declaration to the knowledge of the Zionist Federation. So this was the official letter written by the Foreign Secretary, um, written by the, Jew the Jewish Zionist leadership, saying we're going to acknowledge that there's other people that are non-Jews living in the land, we'll protect their rights, religious rights and civil rights, and will establish this Jewish state. Um, it made complete sense to Balfour and the government. This is the Jewish homeland. The, the Turks are controlling it. When we beat the Turks, this is 1917, November, so about a year later is the end of the war. Already at this point, the Turk, uh, the Ottoman Empire is on the decline. They're losing. Um, they're, going, they, they're going bankrupt. So Britain knows it's just a matter of time. So we'll have this land. And what better thing to do with it than 
make it into a Jewish state. They deserve it. It's been 2,000 years. Look what's happened. And, um, and so this is passed. This is agreed on by the, the, kingdom, sorry, the, the government of the United Kingdom. And an uh, official letter is written uh, conveying this to Lord Rothschild on behalf of the British government. So it, it's an incredible thing. Jerusalem is, is surrendered. So look at this. This is November 2nd. So less than a month later, Jerusalem is captured. So this, this is the mayor of Jerusalem. And it's so hilarious that he came out the morning of December 11th and um, he couldn't find anybody to surrender the city to. He's, he's, he was carrying the keys, looking for somebody that he could just like surrender it to. Cause and all he could find is these British soldiers, all these privates that were just like hanging around because they had laid siege to the city. And so he, he, he wanted to, he wouldn't, uh, of course, surrender the city to a soldier. So he found a, a lieutenant, <laughs> right? This guy right here. And this guy made history by having the city surrender to him because he couldn't find anybody of higher ranking. So he found one of the most lowest ranking <laughs> soldiers and just gave him the keys. And this picture was snapped. Um, and you can see like their, their Turkish outfits and their big mustaches. So this is December 11th, 1917. General Allenby right here. This is him walking through Jaffa Gate. This is, still stands today. You can see all of this in the exact way. This is just paved now. It's like cobblestone. Um, there's the Turkish flag and all the British soldiers and some citizens all lining up, and he's walking through. Now, why is he walking? He's, he was, his nickname was Bloody Bull. He was one of the highest-ranking generals in the British Army, and he literally captured and conquered the land, um, and he took Beersheba, and there's a, a famous story of that. Uh, the, the charge of the Australian light horse. And he captures Bersheba and he captures Jerusalem and he walks through. Uh, but why does he walk? Because uh, earlier, Wilhelm, uh, Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany, uh, he rode into Jerusalem when he was there as kind of like a show, like, oh, look at me, you know. But Allenby wanted to walk because this was the city of Jesus, the city of the great king. And who am I to ride a horse through? So he got off his horse and walked humbly through the gate <coughs> to take the city. And he was taken peacefully, and uh, there's Lord Allenby. But he also, once again, a man of, of the Bible, um, and a man of conviction, and, and that's, that's where he stayed. So now we've come up to 1917, but what was happening during those years of lobbying? The, the Zionists are lobbying the British government, and they're pulling support from all over the world. Um, including other governments, but the, the UK government was the main one because they knew the UK would capture this land and they would be this, the temporary stewards of this land. Because up until now, it's, the, the world has really been run by um, imperial empires, really. I mean, it's the French and the, the, the British and the Russian and the Germans, and that's what, the, that's what everything has been. So in the, in the midst of all of that, there, there's a whole Arab side to the story, which is quite interesting. And these two will, these two will come together. Um, so Hussein bin Ali is the Grand Sharif of Mecca. So at the time, uh, and you can see his dates, he lives till 1931. But during the time of World War I, he was, he's like the main, the main guy. He's like the Pope of Islam, really. He, he runs Mecca. Mecca is the holiest site for Muslims. That's where the Kaaba is and all of, and all of these things. Um, Hussein bin Ali is contacted by the Turkish government and they ask bin Ali to declare a global jihad against the British. Now, this is a serious problem for the British because the British have 100 million Muslims as subjects. 
So they're trying to fight a world war, world war and they have 100 million Muslims that are uh, under their control, living in these the Commonwealth nations that are under part of their empire. This is a serious problem for them. But rather than call a global jihad, bin Ali, he, he's a man who wants, he's an opportunist, he wants to get what he can, and he knows he's not going to get very far with the Turks. He contacts the British, and he says, hey, listen, they've asked me to do this jihad thing. I'd rather not do it. I'd rather work with you. Um, and the British like that idea, so they start talking. And the, the, the British uh, governor of Egypt in Cairo is a man named Henry McMohan, and Henry... Uh, begins talking with Hussein's two sons, Abdullah and Faisal, and he mostly talks with Abdullah. And they trade all of these letters. And what Hussein is, what his, uh, his real, his conditions are, is saying, I won't declare a jihad if you support me with arms and weapons, and then what I will do is stage a revolt against the Turks and go up to Damascus and destroy their railroads and, and wipe out any of their armies and all of this stuff, and I'll disrupt all of their communications. It will help you knock out Turkey out of the war early. And in return, I want a caliphate. I want a, basically an empire. And um, what he initially, really, what, probably what's coming from his perspective is he wants all of modern-day Syria, Lebanon, um, parts of Iraq, all of Jordan, all of modern-day Israel, and all of Saudi Arabia like this massive caliphate. He wants to be like the king or the, the sultan uh, the, or the, the imam of this whole caliphate. And uh, now the British don't like that because first of all, a lot of the lands that he's talking about are controlled by both Britain and France. So that, can, that makes it, for, uh, that's quite difficult. The French were controlling Syria and parts of, and Lebanon. The British had interests in Iraq. They had obvious interests in uh, British Mandate Palestine, which would become that, and Egypt. So they were like, all the positions are, are pieced together. Now, when I say their interests, they didn't have these like interests of, we're going to control these lands forever. But they, because they, um, that, that doesn't happen and we see a shift. But they want to control um, the economy, resources, manpower, um, and also the st strategic railways and roads. That, I mean, it's, it's a central, that's why they call it the Middle East. It's the middle. It's, there's a strategic uh, place um, to control that. So, but they don't want him to declare a jihad, so they're willing to kind of coax him. They're not really lying to him, but they're just omitting certain things. And it's actually quite difficult to truly understand what was going on behind the scenes, because Henry McMullen was writing letters to him, and Henry didn't really know Arabic very well, and they're reading it in English but translating it into Arabic and it's the you know the wires are getting crossed and they do have people like Mark Sykes, T.E. Lawrence or Lawrence of Arabia was involved in this and they were fluent Arab, Arabic speakers but then there's also the, the UK government's interests and they're fighting a costly war they're having hundreds of thousands of people killed at the front and they're trying to prevent something so they're, they're like Britain here is playing a chess game and they're really trying to like move all their pieces properly. But they say, okay, we will support this, but they deliberately keep it vague in the letters with borders. So they kind of, you know, Palestine, oh, Syria, well not, you know, not lower or upper. It's interesting when you start really reading it, but it's enough of a, it's enough of a promise that Hussein, okay, stages, launches the revolt. So this is the revolt from 1916 to 18. 
Mecca's down here, Medina. His son Faisal is the one with Lawrence of Arabia. And they, they rush up to Aqaba and they start going up north to Damascus. They're quite slow off the start. And you can see these years, the Belfort Declaration is right in between, 1917. So this, while um, Heim Wiseman is lobbying the British government and he's meeting with people in Switzerland and, he's, and he's, all of this stuff is going on, the British, behind their back, are also talking to the Arabs. And it, it's hard to, once again, um, to know if they, were, if they would ever have get, actually gone against the Zionists and given them this land, but they were talking to the Arabs. They really didn't like the idea of this pan-Arab empire or caliphate. Um, like uh, Hussein wanted. Um, I mean, the Arabs still got a lot of, quite a lot of stuff, but they were still engaged in talks. And Faisal um, ends up getting up to Damascus. By the time he reaches Damascus, that's when the Belfort Declaration comes out. So it's, it's quite interesting. So um, at first they feel betrayed, but at the same time when the Zionists fall, find out that the British were talking to the Arabs, and some of this stuff, then they get angry. So you have like these, these things that are happening here that Britain is talking with the, about this land. They're talking with the Jews. They're talking with the Arabs. They're being deliberately vague with the Arabs. They're being, um, the only thing the Jews are asking for is this little tiny sliver of land that, and we got to understand the Ottoman Empire, all of this, once they go bankrupt and they shrink and they lose their empire, this creates a vacuum. They're, they're the custodians of this. When they lose all of this, it's, nobody owns it. It was owned by the Ottoman Empire. So um, it, it, it starts something quite interesting. These is a photo of the of Bedouins during the Bedouin revolt. Um, Abdullah is the, is the one son, and he's talking with Henry. And then Faisal is the second son. And what's interesting is that even though the Arabs don't get everything they want, they get a lot. I mean, Faisal wanted to be king of Damascus. He couldn't get, have it because of the French influence, but he was given Iraq. Abdullah um, ended up severing from which was the land of Jordan, which was intended to be part of Israel. He severed it, and he ended up becoming the king of Jordan. Um, so that, And then the Grand Sharif, of course, had Saudi Arabia. So these... Um, and over time, there's some changes here, but they do have huge amounts of land. I mean, Israel is one-sixth of one percent of the Middle East. Like, the, 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 it's a sliver. It's a closet. Uh, and, but this is the interesting thing. Faisal was close friends, became close friends with Chaim Wiseman, the Zionist leader, and the, actually the first president of Israel when it was formed. He was close friends with him. And there's a famous picture of of Faisal and Chaim Weizmann meeting together, and, and Chaim Weizmann is wearing a, a kafia, this headscarf, with him, and he met him, and they actually drew up an agreement um, called the, the Weizmann-Faisal uh, Agreement, and it, that agreement, it was conditional. Faisal was trying to use it as leverage against the British, but what he wanted was Syria as his kingdom. He wanted Syria. He didn't get it, which is why the Faisal-Weizmann uh, Agreement dissolved. But what the agreement said is if I get, basically in a nutshell, if I get Syria, I will support 100% a Jewish state. And in that agreement, he says over and over that he thinks it's a great idea that the Jews are coming back to this land and that, and that the Jews are going to be given a home. He supports that. 
So this is an amazing thing that you do not hear at all in modern circles, because they, they, the modern, the media and all this, they try to portray that every Jew hates every Arab and every Arab hates every Jew. It's like, and they, none of, nobody can get along. But when you look at this period, one of the most powerful Arabs in the world, considered the most religious, and he's considered a direct descendant of Muhammad, um, thought that a Jewish state was a good idea and was willing to support it. That's an interesting thing that is completely ignored in the whole conversation, is that um, top ranking and key officials in, in the Muslim world supported a Jewish state. That is, is, that's, is, is quite fascinating. Um, it didn't work out. TE, that, that agreement. T.E. Lawrence, uh, once again, was close friends with Faisal, but also T.E. Lawrence thought, supported Zionism. He supported Arab sympathies, and he supported Zionism, which, you know, like, I do too. It's like, Arabs deserve a good life, and none of this horrible, horrific dictators and Sharia law and oppression. Like, God loves them. They're made in the image of God. This is nothing against being an Arab. Um, and so I believe you can love Arabs and you can love Jews. You can stand with and support the state of Israel and love Arabs at the same time. 25% of the population of Israel are Arab with full citizenship rights, like full rights. Um, you know, it's, so you can be both. And uh, the, a lot of the, the side that leans towards the, the pro-Palestinian side, they always try to make out the, you know, if you support Israel, then you obviously hate us and you're against us. Well, that's complete rubbish and it doesn't even, it's not even uh, uh, right. Um, and so, but T. Lawrence supported both. Here's a picture of Faisal with Lawrence, right there, near the end of the war. So um, the two of them were often with each other. So British double talk. And I put a question mark there because I, I really, I feel for also for the British because they were under incredible duress faced with massive um, uh, just choices and economic decisions and seeing like a whole generations of their people being killed in war. And they're desperate for peace and they were desperate to end the war as victors, but they were desperate to end it. So they were in talks with the Zionists, as we've talked about. They were in talks with the Arabs through Sharif Hussein. They were even in negotiations with the Turks. And what they were trying to do is say, like, if we, if we can come to an agreement that takes you out of the war, we will let you keep your land. So if that had happened, both the Arabs and the Zionists wouldn't have gotten anything. So the British were willing to betray both of these to, tr to try to settle with the Turks. But it's amazing that every time the British met with the Turks uh, for, uh, to sue for peace, the Turks felt weak. Uh, no, sorry, felt strong, so they would reject any offers of peace. And then whenever the Turks... Were, felt weak and would meet the British, the British felt strong and would reject any. So it's like, once again, it's like we can see the hand of God behind this because at the end of the day, 1948 happened and there's a Jewish state. Why? Well, things happened and some of these things almost derailed it. But God says it in the scriptures that he will reestablish them. He will rebuild Zion in a day. He's going to bring them back. Um, and people will try to get in the way of this and it won't work. You know, God's plans will not be disrupted. So, um, and they're also, and number four, they're in negotiations with the French. This, which, and, and Mark Sykes, who is uh, an anti-Semite at this time, um, met with Francois Picot in 1916, this is a year before the Belfort, but this is during the time where the Zionists 
are talking with the British government about getting the land of Israel. And the Arabs are talking with the government about getting this pan-Arab empire. Well, behind all of their backs, Mark Sykes, who is an a, a officer and a, basically a, a diplomat, meets with the diplomat Francois Picot, and they come up with this thing called, which has been known as the, the Sykes-Picot Agreement. Now, the Sykes-Picot Agreement failed. It, it never went into of, anything official. But if it did, that's what it would have looked like. You see, there's no Israel, <laughs> there's no Arab anything. They were literally going to just divide it into zones and control it, and then um, do then figure out if we wanted to do something with it somewhere down the line. But this um, would have made it into an international zone. So it was a this was a complete betrayal to the uh, promises made to the Zionists, a complete betrayal to promises, of course, made to the Arabs, and. You know, they didn't really care about the, the Turks at this time. They were working behind their backs. So, but they met in Switzerland, behind everybody's backs. And when the Zionists and the Arabs found out about this, when it leaked, they just hit the roof. And then, interestingly enough, Mark Sykes met with Chaim Weizmann and became a Zionist. <laughs> so he, he, and it, he be, ended up you know, supporting this, and he, and he looked at it and thought it was an excellent idea. But he also spoke fluent Arabic, so he had great relationships with the Arabs as well. So, but this was happening behind the scenes, 1916. It's very complicated. I'm trying to make it as simple as possible. There's Heim Weizmann and Faisal in 1918. So the, the declaration, this is after the declaration's already come out, and Faisal is agreeing with Balfour Declaration um, and, and seeing the benefit in that. So the Turks lose. The British establish the British mandate of Palestine. The, the British, what is a mandate? And we'll talk a bit about that. Um, but there was tons of mandates all over the place. So there was nothing unique in the British Mandate of Palestine when you compare it to other mandates. So, you know, in, in all of this case, the Jews are unique to the scriptures, but in a legal case or in a nationalistic case, there's just all kinds of other mandates and other national groups all appe appealing for independence um, at, the, at the same time. So these are the flags of the, of the British Mandate of Palestine. So the Arabs continued to pressure Britain and France for this pan-Arab kingdom, but the British established the Mandate of Palestine, and they actually held on to their guns and, um, and said, no, this will become the Jewish home. And they, the Balfour Declaration was agreed by the government, and then the Arabs got mad, but then when they calmed down, they're like, well, there is a lot more land. Like, let's see what we can do. So there was a lot more things going on in the background, but this initially was what Israel was supposed to be like, look like. So this was, uh, in 1920, agreed by law, by the, by the British, and the British were looked at, a mandate, they were looked at as stewards. They're custodians, temporary custodians. This is supposed to be temporary, okay? So obviously modern-day Israel does not look like that today. This was what was promised to the Jews. Modern Israel, I mean, this is with Jordan, right, attached to it. So the French mandate, the British mandate, this was under British control, British control, British control. When you get into, like, Libya and Morocco and Tunisia and all that, there was under, like, Italian and French and British. Like, so all different nations were involved in this. But this is what the mandate was supposed to look at, look like. Now, in 1920, uh, San Remo happened. And you look at this map now. It looks completely different than the other one with the big kingdoms. You have all these little countries. So all these, these empires and kingdoms are broken up 
Czechoslovakia, Austria, Hungary, Romania, Yugoslavia, like Poland, they're all broken up. To, it's trying to equalize and split up power, but also give people nation states that, you know, like the, pe the people that uh, identify themselves as being Czech and have that culture. Well, they say, well, we're not Austrians, we're not Germans, so we want our own uh, country. So San Remo, the San Remo Agreement is uh, a San Remo is a place in Italy, southern Italy, uh, sorry, not southern Italy, but along the, the coast, um, and all the nations of the world come there. So at this time, it's the League of Nations, not the United Nations. All the nations of the world come there, and there's 50 powers represented. All the principal powers of World War One that won are the, are like officiating this, including Japan. And they're all sitting on there and lining up along around the block are representatives from dozens of national groups. Jews, Arabs, Czechs, Poles, Hungarians, all these people. And they're all appealing for nations. This is for the first time in centuries that these huge powers have been destroyed. And now it's like, now we have a chance to carve up Europe. Now we have a chance to carve up the Middle East and give people back independence. That's what this is about. So in, in 1920, the, 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 uh, the San Remo, the, the, all these principal powers, they take the Balfour Declaration and they make it law. The League of Nations makes that into international law. The League of Nations has the equivalence of today of the, of the Security Council of the United Nations. So that's, like, that's the core, that's the most powerful portion of, of the United Nations, the League of Nations. And this is not colonialism. Often people accuse Israel, well, you're just a bunch of white colonialists. Like, it's, it's, it's garbage, it's not even true. But this is not, was not colonialism, this is nationalism. This is giving people back their independence and freedom. And you, we even see India would follow, right? India would get their independence. All these countries get their independence. So the Jews make their appeal and the Balfour Declaration, which came out almost three years earlier, is upheld and agreed on by the world powers. Everybody votes for it and agrees, yep, let's do this. Let's give the Jews a nation state, a national home, a country in British Mandate Palestine. So that's the San Remo Agreement. And the interesting thing is the San Remo Agreement, um, in Article 6, I mean, it's it, not too exhaustive. It's too, exhaustive enough that I'm not going to read it. But uh, tonight, like the whole San Remo Agreement, you can Google it. But this uh, Article 6 is incredible because, so what they're voting on here, look at the date, 1920, that's what they're voting on. So there's no Jordan yet. This is what the, whole, the League of Nations and the world voted on to give that land to the Jews. And, um, and so this, this land's going to the, the Jewish people and the San Remo Agreement defends this and, uh, and it's looking at splintering up uh, empires and making nation states. And it looks at uh, the, these mandates and these, these mandate systems. But Article 6, this is what I was going to show you, Article 6 says that with the help of, of the British government and the, and the League of Nations, that they will help the Jews uh, with full Jewish settlement of the land. That. So all these controversies with the West Bank, occupied territory, Gaza, they don't, there's no borders. That doesn't even exist. Jordan doesn't even exist. That land was supposed to be for full Jewish settlement. And that was the last 
legal document signed by the world powers from today going back. So then, then if that's, if that's an incredible thing because everybody, including the United States government, the UN, all the resolutions, everybody keeps saying, occupied territories, Israel's breaking international law. These are political statements. They have no legal bearing. The last legal agreement that was binding was 1920 that said the Jews can settle all uh, state land. So not, they're not saying the Jews can kick people out or take land. There's state land or land that can't be proven to have ownership. So the, 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 the issue for a lot of the Arabs, there, I mean, there are Arabs that owned land and they had deeds and titles and all of that, but a lot of Arabs that were living in the land had immigrated there in the early 20s or even prior to. A lot of them were just squatters, peasants, nomads. The, the Bedouin groups just moved around. They didn't legally own land. They were just there. They were kind of custodians. Um, so, but there were Arabs, of course, that owned land. But Article 6 says for basically that state land that it can be full settlement. That would include Judea Samaria. Judea Samaria is here. That's the biblical heartland. That's in Shiloh or Shiloh. That's what the Ark of the Covenant stood there for 364 years. Like before the Jews ever had Jerusalem, yeah, I, I, you know, when it was the Jebusite city with King David, they had Judea Samaria. And this is the biblical heartland. But this is what the world calls illegal, occupied. Now, these are buzzwords, and um, it's not illegal, it's not occupied, and, and history just shows that very fact in other ways as well. Um, because the, the West Bank wasn't even um, called the West Bank until Jordan captured it illegally in 1948 and um, tried to annex it, and they called it the West Bank because it was the West Bank of the Jordan River. And... Um, it, so that's a whole other thing. That, but the, the Jordans illegally held that land, and the whole world, including the Arab League, never recognized Jordan's sovereignty over that land. They, the only two countries in the world that recognized that Jordan could be in that little land called the West Bank today, Judea Samaria, was Britain and Pakistan. were the only two in the world. The whole world said, Jordan, you have no right to be there because that land was intended for the state of Israel, but also in the partition plan was intended for, the, for an Arab state, but the Arabs rejected it. So it's either nobody's land or it's the Jewish land. So the, the Jews have the, the, the best case legally for that land. And Egypt illegally occupied Gaza at the end of, of, the, of the War of Independence. But, but both, and, they have, and they held those lands for 19 years and no Palestinian state was ever created. So it's only when the Jews capture it, now this becomes a problem. For the, the Arab world. So it, it, it's, it sounds complicated when you look at it chronologically, and I'm jumping a little bit ahead, then it actually fits into its rightful place. Um, it's about mandates. What is a mandate? Um, that's what we have to look at. The British mandate of Palestine, uh, all these other, there was the French mandate of uh, Syria. That is what a mandate is. It's a provisional recognition of a nation subject to administrative assistance until it can stand alone. So the reason why they didn't do mandates in Europe, because those European countries already had a form of democracy in their history. The Middle East had none of that. So what they were going to do is create a mandate. We will be the custodians and help you along the line to get independence so then you can basically stand on both feet. Then we will give you your independence and we will leave. That was the mandate. That's what a mandate was for. So the British Mandate of Palestine wasn't any different than the other 20 mandates in the Middle East. 
So this is the amazing thing for the anti-Israel people that say Israel stole the land. They have no right. The Belfort Declaration. Um, they had no right to give away that land. And they, they frame it as, as if the, the Palestinians had been there for a time immemorial or they owned the land, which they didn't, um, like the whole land. Um, but they, they throw out these accusations and they say, well, the mandate of, of, of the Belfort Declaration, the mandate of Palestine was annulled and it, it should be annulled and it should be taken away. Well, the interesting thing is the mandate of Israel, sorry, the British mandate of Palestine follows the same structure of all the mandates. So if Israel has no right to exist based on the mandate system, then nor does the entire Middle East. So if we if if we have to if the United Nations was to try to dismantle Israel today, well then theoretically Egypt, Iraq, Jordan, Lebanon, Libya, Syria, Tunisia, Morocco, all of them should lose their independence and all lose their nations. So that's where it becomes anti-Semitism. We're going to ignore all of that and just pick on the Jews because they're Jews. It's like okay, if we're going to be fair, if they don't deserve a state, nobody does in the Middle East. Then you could even go further and say maybe we should just get the, Germ the German Empire and the Austro-Hungary Empire. You know, they probably got ripped off. And then we could even go further back and say maybe us white Canadians should all leave and go back to Europe because this was First Nations. I don't know. Like, it, it's just, you know, it's, it's pretty hypocritical and preposterous to, like, go down that line. But that side of, of people that hate Israel will just single Israel out. They don't care about any of that. They don't care about fairness. They just hate Jews being in that land. It's, it's nothing to do with fairness or legal is or legal law. Um, but that's what a mandate system was, and it's and so there's yeah right there. So it wasn't in, it wasn't in the north. That's where San Remo is. But what happens is one of the articles in the San Remo Agreement. It it, de it it it's it mentioned because the Arabs were putting once the Arabs knew that this Jewish state was inevitable. They started putting tons of pressure on um, the, the Arab leadership. Some of the Arab leadership within the, within the uh, Jewish Palestine put tons of pressure on the Arab population trying to stir them up to revolt. Uh, but they also put tons of pressure on the British because they are controlling this land. And Abdullah, the, one, the son of Hussein, put enough pressure and was able to look at the San Remo Agreement and compromise it somewhat. Um, because one of the articles... Uh, the San Remo Agreement said that the land east of the Jordan River was, uh, would be ultimately fully decided upon um, by Britain in the years to come. Like, it's very, it's kind of vague. But they put enough pressure on that saying, we want a state, we want a state, um, even though they had, uh, you know, other mandates were set up to give them states. They said, we want a state of our own, the Arabs living in this region. We want a state of our own. That's what they said. And really, Abdullah just wanted a kingdom. Like, Faisal was getting Iraq. Abdullah needs to get something. Um, he doesn't want to hang out in Saudi Arabia. So he wants, he wants a kingdom. So he puts enough pressure. And even though this had all been agreed by the League of Nations, by law, Britain, really, I mean, what they did was illegal, cut this section off, took 77% of the original mandate, and gave it to Abdullah and created Jordan. And Jordan was created for the Arabs living in the land. So this is the interesting thing is, theoretically, there's already a Palestine. So that, you know, the Palestinians are saying, we want our own nation, we want self-determination. They already have it. They got it in 1922. The Arabs living in that land 
wanted a country and the British cut it off and gave them Jordan. Today, 50% of Jordanians identify themselves as Palestinians, Palestinian Arabs. So they already got the land. Um, but there were still some Arabs living in this part um, that with uh, incitement and other things still were not happy. Even though Abdullah got this, and there's your Palestine, Arab Palestine, your Transjordan, which became Jordan later, um, it's already, they already have an Arab state. This is 1922. You know, this is uh, 26 years before the state of Israel is born. They already have their state. So even today, they're yelling, we want a state, we want a state. They got a state in 1922, but that wasn't enough. So this is then what was going to be given to, uh, the, 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 for the Jewish state. This would become Israel. Um, and the, virtually this is modern-day Israel. Um, the world would say no because they would they put little imaginary lines being the West Bank, which it isn't a border. It is not an international border, both Gaza and uh, the West Bank, Judea Samaria. Um, so, you know, th this would be greater Israel, or this is what Israel is supposed to be. Um, so, but this is what was uh, kind of a rearranged, and you know what? The Jews didn't fight this. Of course, they would have been disappointed here, but the Jews just wanted a closet. If they could have got a closet, they would take it. So the, um, the Arabs, uh, Abdullah took this. The Arabs within here said, this isn't good enough. We still want to stay. The Jews accepted this, by the way. So they lost 77% of the land given to them. They were given 23. They accepted it. Um, here's the, all the years of independence from the mandates. So when you like, look at this. So um, the whole Middle East as we know it today is quite modern. They're not these ancient countries. You know, a number of you here, uh, here would have been born, <laughs> you know, in something, 1979, 1962, um, 48, of course, Cyprus, 1960. So uh, 1970, Oman, UAE, 1971, Qatar, Bahrain, 1971. So th this, is, this is the aftermath of World War I. So we're still living in all the problems that we have today are the, the aftermath of World War I. Mm -hmm. And it was their attempt in the beginning of the 20th, in the 20th century to be fair. Now, of course, you know, there was, they were very nearsighted in certain areas because, like, you take a country like Iraq, and it has hundreds of tribes, tribal groups, mm -hmm. yet they're tr and they all hate each other, yet they're trying to say, you're all Iraqis now. Mm -hmm. so, that's, so what we're seeing with ISIS, what we're seeing with a lot of these issues, um, they like to blame it on Western colonialism in the U.S. and death to America and blah, blah, blah. But without all of them, they'd, right back to before Muhammad, the Arabs were killing themselves. They were always fighting. There were, there were all these um, tribes in Saudi Arabia, and not just picking on the Arabs, but in any part of the world where you get tribes, they always fight each other. Right? All the, the British tribes all fought each other in, during the, the Romans, the, the German tribes, the, the, North America. The native tribes all fought each other. So wherever you get a tribal system, they'll always fight and compete. Well, that's what it was in Saudi Arabia. Muhammad just rallied them all and gave them a religion, and, and they did what they did. And so the, they were the, the fathers, the European fathers, and meeting with the, the, these Arab governments, these leaders, these nationalistic leaders, this is what they thought was best. Probably not. Probably what they should have done was carve up Iraq about another dozen times and make it into tiny little tiny countries with all these different groups. 
But they didn't, and this is why we're also having some serious issues. They just like to blame it on the US. Um, I'll just do a, a little bit more. Um, so I hope you start, you're starting to see what's going on here. Like this is, of course, and I hope it's not too dry, but the legal case for what's happening behind the scenes, but also how God's orchestrating things. Because it gets even more exciting as we go, but with Christian pastors getting involved. Um, and people, like a Christian pastor, um, there was a, a Christian pastor from Winnipeg, William Hall, who moved to British Mandate Palestine in 1932. And when um, the UN was getting really frustrated with, and, and Britain was getting really frustrated with the Jews and with the Arabs, because they're trying to appease both, um, the UN sent this, uh, uh, this um, organization called UNSCOT, United Nations Special Commission on Palestine, they sent them to the land to say, should we create a Jewish state? Which is ridiculous, because, I mean, 20 years earlier, they put into law that we would create a Jewish state. But they were still questioning this because of all the pressure, um, particularly this man started everything uh, right here. Um, he was a friend of Adolf Hitler as well. But, um, uh, but UNSCOP, they, went, uh, they took all these delegates from all around the world, and, um, one of the, and Canada actually sent a delegate. Uh, to represent and to see should the Jews get a state and it was a Supreme Court judge Ivan Rand who was sent and um, Canada didn't want to embarrass the uh, Britain because Britain was embarrassed enough because of the British mandate so Canada didn't even want to go over there and the US put pressure on Canada to send a delegate so Canada chose somebody who knew nothing about the Bible and and Zionism or anything just completely ignorant a Christian like by you know nominal standards this man, Ivan Rand, goes over and he's with this group. And um, I'll show you. Oh, we're almost there. Mr. Rand, where are you? Yeah, the Holocaust. Um, so Ivan Rand goes over there. And what he naturally wants to do is meet, is to find out, here we go is to find out, so Canada, India, Iran, Uruguay, Netherlands, Australia, Guatemala, Peru, Sweden, Yugoslavia, and Czechoslovakia. Those are the nations that form UNSCOP to go over. And here's Chaim Wiseman and Abe Eben, who became the first United Nations uh, ambassador to the, uh, from Israel. So they're in a meeting here, a briefing with the members of UNSCOP. And um, there's David Ben-Gurion meeting with UNSCOP. Here's Ivan Rand. And Ivan Rand goes there, and the first thing he wants to find out is, are there any Canadians living in the land? And he finds out, oh yeah, there's this pastor, William Hall, uh, from Winnipeg, Zion Apostolic Church, and he's living in the land, and he had like a little Christian bookstore. So Ivan Rand snuck out, literally, like the British were watching Unscop like hawks, because the British didn't want to be humiliated. Uh, the British were probably hoping um, that Unscop would say a Jewish state shouldn't be created, or because uh, Britain basically dumped the mandate on the United Nations and said, we've had it, and waved the white flag and said, this is ridiculous. We can't do this. Um, so Ivan Rand met with William, he snuck out and met with William Hall over breakfast. And in two, uh, two hours they met, William Hall turned him into a Zionist. Because <laughs> William Hall just pr said, basically, do you know why you're here? Do you know the history of Israel? And William Hall was a theologian and an evangelist and a Bible scholar and all of this stuff, very educated. And Ivan Rand knows nothing, so he just listens to him. And Ivan Rand just talks to him about what God's doing and prophecy and all these incredible things. 
And Ivan Rand just is like, whoa, and he just completely gets turned on to this whole thing. And the, um, he goes back with this, and their mission was about four months in the land. They even witnessed the Exodus, you know that famous story of the Exodus, the refugee ship yeah. of, of Jewish refugees. Oh, well, there's a book, right, by Leon Uri. There was a film, I think with Paul Newman or something, that was made the Exodus. Anyway, um, they, uh, what it was was uh, they were uh, displaced persons. They were all Holocaust survivors. There was 4,000 of them on the ship, and they were trying to run the, uh, an illegal blockade and get to Israel because they were, like it was horrific of what they were leaving was Europe. Like This is 1947, um, right after the Holocaust, and they had lost everything, and all they wanted to do was get to Israel. Um, and the British um, stopped the vessel, and they went out, and um, many of the British soldiers horribly beat these people. A number of them were uh, killed. They had like 400 pregnant women on the on the ship. Like these people were absolutely desperate um, to get to Israel through Haifa. And Unscop witnessed this, um, the abuse. But the whole this whole thing, I mean, it wasn't a charade in the in the area that these people didn't matter. But it was set up by the Haganah, and the Haganah was a Jewish resistance movement that was trying to push the British into allowing the Jewish state to stop being so terrible. And the, the, the Haganah were targeting not British people, like soldiers, they were actually like destroying like things like railways and munition outposts and trying to like run their bill way up that Britain would finally like, okay, like listen to them. David Ben-Gurion was part of the Haganah. So the Haganah put this together, this operation, and this operation, the most valuable person on the ship was this man a Christian pastor, who isn't actually in the film, The Exodus. But this was the whole reason for The Exodus, was this man. Because the Haganah knew that Unscop was in the land, and they knew that Unscop, well, you know, they wouldn't really take a Jew seriously, a refugee, because, oh, he's just a Jew, you know, and this is a Jew who's part of all the Jews in this country that are having issues with the Arabs, and the Arabs are having issues with the Jews. And who's right, you know, who would know, kind of thing. Like, this is what they're thinking. So, but the Haganah knew that they would listen to a non-Jew. So they got this, he's American, they smuggled him onto this ship, got him to, to Haifa, and when the British went out, they smuggled John Stanley Grawl off the vessel, smuggled him into Israel, and took him to Jerusalem, and he went and met to a number of uh, the members of Unscot, and he had the log books of the, sh of the vessel, and he just basically said, this is what happened, these are who these people are, you need to listen to them. And then he uh, went uh, a couple blocks away, and is in Jerusalem, and he met with Golda Meir, who would be later to be the Prime Minister. She heard his story, wept, kissed him, and sent him packing, and he went back to the U.S., and that was his, done. And his mission was done. But that was one of the turning points. Here's Unscop in the corner. Here's some members of Unscop watching. Here's British soldiers. This is the vessel, the Haganah, the Exodus. So, um, Grawl's... Um, his uh, statement, his eyewitness testimony, the abuse of people here, Ivan Rand's Zionism, all of these things uh, turn into, there's on Scott, um, blossom into this incredible flower. So at the end of the summer of 47, all the delegates come together. This is a really incredible thing. All the delegates come together and compare notes. And remember, their whole purpose of, of Unscop is to say, should the Jews have a national home, a state, or should this just be an international land for kind of anybody? And um, uh, Unscop gets together, they compare notes, 
and everybody's contradicting everybody. Like some people are for the Jews, some people are against the Jews, like other people are like sitting on the fence, they don't know. And Ivan Rand gets up and makes a speech. And he says, guys, I'm paraphrasing it. Guys, this is, this is embarrassing. We cannot turn this into the United Nations. We've been commissioned by the world to come here and investigate this, and we've done so. We've seen blah, 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 blah. And then he starts preaching to them about the Bible and about the Jews and about Zionism, and he sells Zionism to them. And the whole group, they rewrite their uh, report and submit it to the UN saying, yes, a Jewish state should be created. And that directly just sparks. This is 1947. So in the fall of 47, in November 47, you have the partition plan is created. That's the partition plan. Resolution 181. Here's the Jewish state with an Arab state. And Jerusalem will be an international zone. This is what they offer. And once again, look at like this Jewish state just keeps shrinking. The Arabs already have their state. They're going to get a second state. But 60% of the, the new Jewish state is desert. So they're, they're, but the Jews accept this because anything is better than nothing. The Jews accept it. And now this looks like the West Bank, roughly, a little bit different. Gaza is, a little, you know, like some of these. But so the Jews accept it. The Arabs reject it. So that's the big thing. If if the Arabs had accepted this, then in 1967, when Israel conquered this land, that would have been a direct violation of the League of Nations because they would have been invading another sovereign nation. You can't just annex somebody else's country into yours. But the Arabs rejected this. So the resolution fell apart, basically. One side completely dropped off the map. So this land would almost be like nobody's land. Or, going back to 1922, the last legal document is it's the Jewish land. So international laws are treaties and customs. And it only becomes international law if both parties agree and everybody then starts living that. Then it becomes solidified. But if one party says sure and the other says no, it's, it's, not, it's not legally binding. So the Arabs say no. So the Arabs, I mean, the bottom line is that they never, you know, they, they, oh, what am I trying to say? They, you know, they never miss out on missing an opportunity. They, you know, they always, it's like, they, they always have terrible leadership. So I feel for the common Arab person, like living in these, like, in these nations under Sharia law, like it's all, it, they have no rights. It's, a, it's very oppressive. It's very dark. Um, many Arabs are leaving Islam and even becoming believers, and they're just they're getting really angry with Islam. But when we look at history, they always have terrible leadership representing them, and it's and and they still do today. And they have like corrupt leadership that seem to they always say always speak for every one of you, but like but most like today they've done polls, and most Palestinians living in the land would never even want to be citizens of a Palestine if it was created. Why? Because they love democracy and they're living in Israel with rights. They know if a Palestine is created and they become citizens of that, it's a Sharia law, extremist Islamic state, like the other 21. And, um, and so they've always had terrible representation. And so the Arab leadership, once again, shoot down, no, they say no to Resolution 181. The Jews say yes, and they declare statehood. That is exactly what happens. The Jews declare statehood, and what does all the Arab nations do? They declare war. Now this is, and this is amazing because it's like you have the League of Nations and the whole UN agreeing to this. The UN and the League of Nations recognize Israel. And then you have 
UN bodies, UN's, like UN members, attacking a sovereign nation aggressively. Like those, what should have happened is all those countries, Egypt and, and Syria and Iraq and those nations that attacked Israel should have lost their membership. They never did. But like, it, that's, that completely goes against the entire United Nations. That's not supposed to happen. But Israel defended, it defends itself. They fight a defensive war that lasts almost a year. And so they declare officially May 14, 1948. The day they declare independence, um, the Arab states attack. Immediately attack. And with the intent to wipe them. They're like, there'll be another holocaust. And you can look up. They, they, they're, they're proud of it. They put it in their papers. They put it on their radio waves. They're saying there's going to be another. This will be a war of annihilation, they say. And, I mean, the whole Palestine thing, like, look at that. That's the new, the Jerusalem Post newspaper used to be called the Palestine Post. And all the authors and all, sorry, all the journalists and writers and editors were all Jews. And um, this is a, quite an interesting thing of, like, when you think of Jews calling themselves Palestinians or they had used that term as an association. Look at this. Um, we're going to just go zip back just a bit. Okay. Yeah, so this is a humorous picture of like um, the Jews getting nothing. Um, yeah, there's a funny way of saying that. Yeah. Humorous picture of them getting nothing. Well, that's what it was, right? Because he's drawing a little line around him. He says it's still like your national home, kind of, and he's like in the sand and the see you. And so this is the Pal the Palestine Maccabee Football Club, and they're all Jews. This is, you know, this is a, a poster from Kirin Hayasod that encourages Jews to make, make Aliyah move to Israel, help him build Palestine. Palestine marches to the pipes. There's the Jewish football club. Palestine currency. This is all done by uh, the Jewish leadership. The Palestine in Hebrew and Arabic, uh, the pal a, a stamp. There's the state of... Like, so, at that time, the British, when we look at British letters, diary entries, log entries... All of these things, censuses, they, the British refer to them as Palestinian Jews and Palestinian Arabs. In fact, in 1919 at the uh, Paris um, conference, the Arab delegates said, we're not Palestinians. They said, Palestine is a Zionist invention. So they like, completely rejected. We want nothing to do. We don't, we're not Palestinians. We don't even want to be associated or have that word used to us because they were very proud of being Arab. And it wasn't until the 1960s that that word was hijacked, taken by Yasser Arafat, and applied to the people, the Arabs living in the land. And he said, you guys are, you guys are Palestinians. You guys have always been here from time immemorial. Um, the, you guys are the ancient Canaanites. He just he made it all up. It's historical revisionism. Um, it makes zero sense. And he said, you know, the Jews are invaders. So if, if, if Yasser Arafat could tell the Arabs, you guys have been here forever, even before the Jews, um, I mean, there's things that said, you know, Jericho was a Palestinian city and then Joshua came and burned it down. So this is like a war of words. If that was true, well then, th that totally undermines the Jewish argument that this is where our ancestral homeland. Well, if, that was a pa if the Palestinians are an ethnicity, well then they were here before you, well then it's always been their land. This is the, 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 the spin um, and it's a it's a quite a huge one, and they've been uh, drilling it into the world, and the world has by and large accepted this. When in fact, so now when you get people that stand up and 
say, no, this is, I mean, not saying I agree with all his policies. I don't know half of his policies, but Newt Gingrich once got blasted because he said the Palestinians are an invented people. And all across the world, people just like crucified him and called him like, you're a liar, you're a racist and all blah, 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 blah. But what he actually said was true. Like he's not like saying I hate Arabs, but what he said is true. And it goes right back to Hadrian, Syria, Palestina. You know, the, the, to, take, to take the Arabs and say that um, there's something else is just not true. Um, when, they, when you can find it right through their whole, all their writings. And it's just incredible. And um, I'll close with this. Listen to this. And so it's just not even my, this isn't my opinion. Um, and this is for a, a quote from a member of the PLO in 1970. Um, okay. I know I'm really close. Um, actually, I'll look on the bottom. Great quote. What's the PLO? Okay, yes, that's that's good. Okay, the PLO was started in 1963. Um, it's it was it's a terrorist organization. It mm. stands for the Palestinian Liberation Organization. And this is the thing. It was and what's significant about the year 1963 is that it's four years before 1967. And in 1967 <laughs> is when Israel captured the land. That today. The Palestinians say, the reason why we exist, the reason why we resist and blah, 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 and do all this stuff is because you're occupying our land, the West Bank. Yet they were all formed before the land was ever under Jewish control. Mm -hmm. So it proved, so in 1963, when the PLO was formed, all of their rhetoric, all of their propaganda was, we've got to wipe out the Jews. And in their actual covenant, they say nothing about the land that at that time was occupied by Jordan. So what they're talking about, the war they're talking about, the war of terror, is against greater Israel, all the rest of Israel. They want Haifa, they want Jaffa, they want all, Beersheba, all of that. They don't want any Jews there. And then when the Jews win the 1967 war, the PLO amend their own covenant to include now the West Bank. Because now all of a sudden Jordan gave it up. They, oh, they got defeated. And then Jordan actually renounced it. Israel, when they captured the Judea, Samaria, the West Bank, and Gaza, they tried to give it back immediately. And the Jordan and Egypt said, we don't want it. They actually renounced it. So Israel, that's the amazing thing. They conquer the land in a defensive war, and they immediately try to give it back for peace. And the Arab world says, nope, we don't want it. We want to stay within, basically in a, uh, in a state of war with you. And so then the PLO, I mean, the PLO was Yasser Arafat. They, they're the ones who started plane hijackings, suicide bombings, uh, 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 capturing cruise ships, terrorism. Yasser Arafat is the father of modern terrorism. And why? Why all this? Like, why are they so against? Well, it's, it, it, it's the heart of Islam. It's, it's Orthodox Islam. The, theologi it's the, the, um, that's the only way, like, it's... And not all Muslims, of course. No. But if, if, you, if you follow Orthodox Islam, then it, that's what it teaches. That, that this land could never be um, 
run by the Jews. It's in, and because it was at one time under Islamic control, it, is, it, it was at once, because Islam sees the world as the house of war and the house of peace. The house of peace is where Islam rules. So once land has been conquered for Islam, it's always the la a land of Islam. It can never be undone. So if somebody take, retakes that land, you have to do everything you can and never stop to take it back. So, um, yeah, so like, that's the only way to explain it. Otherwise, mm -hmm. then to the Muslim, Allah is weak. Because Allah said, in, like in, in the Quran, I mean, it has different revelations, and I can't get into it all, but at the end of the, the day, Islam is a global, and I'm talking about orthodox theological, like Islamic theological orthodoxy, really, because um, most Muslims have never read the entire Quran or, like, really know much about it. So a lot of Muslims would not ascribe to that. They would have no idea why or they'd be against that. Mm -hmm. um, they, they, but it's very awkward for them because then they're like, well, I don't want to be, I don't want to, like, be seen as, you know, being against it or, uh, you know, against Islam, though I don't agree with killing innocents or starting wars, these kinds of things. Um, but the PLO was the first homegrown um, terror organization. Um, however, terrorism predates Israel by a hundred years. Um, that guy that I pointed out, um, Hajimain al-Husseini, um, he, he fomented the Hebron massacre. Oh, okay, this is actually, that's the quote I want. Um, he fomented <laughs> the Hebron massacre in 1929. So there was no Israel. In 1929 in Hebron, the, the, the uh, al-Husseini spread the lie that the Jews are trying to destroy the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and um, a huge portion of the, of the Arab uh, community of Hebron took up knives and went through and killed, slaughtered 67 Jews, wounded 66, and drove the entire Arab Jewish community out of Hebron. That was the first time since Abraham there hadn't been a Jew living in Hebron in 1929. Mm -hmm. And they destroyed every Jewish business. They sacked the synagogues. They they just trashed everything, and it was just horrific. Um, I was just in Hebron in November. Um, at the same time, though, and this is an amazing story in the midst of terror, is and it just shows you once again that in 1929 there were Arabs that still wanted to live peacefully with Jews, and they were not bloodthirsty. Forty Arab families in Hebron saved the lives of 400 Jews. Mm. They hid them in their homes, and one elderly Arab man even blocked the door from a mob, blocked it with his arm, and they hacked his arm off and then left. So they cut this guy's arm off and then left. So there were Arabs that stood up against this. Hajimin al-Husseini conducted a, a Bedouin revolt where he stirred up the populace because he hated Jews. Once again, he was a friend of Hitler. Like, this guy was nuts. He encouraged <coughs> Hitler. He wanted to bring concentration camps to... Pal Palestine, if they could drive out the British. He wanted to ethnic cleanse, like kill them all. And Hajimin al-Husseini stirred up the population <coughs> to kill the Jews. And um, he was just this evil person. And, um, okay, Hebron Massacre. This is, a, this is a great quote. I am so close to it. 1929. Maybe I gotta go, well, 1977, but maybe I gotta go a little bit earlier. Oh, here's, hey, right there. Um, so this is, uh, so there was always the terrorism and violence. Uh, Hajimin al-Husseini, from 1934 to 1939, during the Arab Bedouin Revolt, 
killed over 3,000 of his own people. Why? Because these are people that would rather live with Jews than kill Jews. So when you look at history, it, it, it's not just black and white. Like There were Arabs there that loved the Jews and wanted to work and saw them as cousins. Even Faisal calls them, they're our cousins. And the reason why immigration spiked like, is the Arabs started flooding in flooding into the land when the Jews were buying up the land and the land was becoming prosperous. Well, when any land becomes prosperous, it creates jobs. So thousands of Arabs, and it's all in the British documents. The British couldn't even control the uh, border crossings. Illegal people were just flooding into the land to, because it was a boom. And all of those people became later Palestinians. So the, the Palestinian narrative that says we've been here forever isn't mm -hmm. true. Most people that would identify themselves as Palestinians are Jordanian, Lebanese, Syrian, Iraq, Arabs that have only lived in the land for 40, 50, maybe 60 years, max. Which is why when the United Nations after the World War, sorry, after the War of Independence in 48, the United Nations had created UNRWA, this, I mean, it's so corrupt to try to get into this now, but UNRWA, the United Nations, there was a refugee problem. Both Jews, there was Jews and Arabs. Now, the two are a little bit different because uh, about 800,000 Jews fled these Arab countries all around it, and they, they ran for their lives. They lost everything. Arab governments liquidated their banks, their businesses, their money. Jews literally arrived in Israel with like nothing, and hundreds and hundreds of them were killed escaping these Arab lands because that they had lived in for 2,000 years plus. I mean, going back to the Babylonian 586, um, like Jews have been living in Iran, Persia, since 586 BC. And in the course of a very short time, these nations were liquidated. The Jews fled to Israel. Well, when they got to Israel, Israel made them citizens. So they lost their refugee status. But the Arabs living in the land, most of them, um, the, the, leading up to 1948, these Arab nations around them, basically through radio, newspapers, word of mouth, um, all kinds of ways, told the Arabs living in the land, there's going to be a war, get out of the land, we're going to go in, wipe out the Jews, we'll give them your home, their homes. We'll give, them, we'll give you their lands, their homes, everything. We'll just get rid of them all. So many, most of the Arabs left, not all, and, and there's a few reasons. Not all of them left because of they heard it on the radio. There's rumors in war, right? There was libels that were spreading that, oh, Jews are massacring Arabs. And so like, get out. So like, you know, there's rumors and people get afraid and the land was also peppered with Arab and Jewish uh, towns. Well, in that, in that war, it's either your friend or foe, right? So what if the town next to you doesn't like the idea of a Jewish state or, there's, or, the, or the leadership? Well, then what, what do you do with, like, how do you win a war with it like that? So there, was, so there were some Arabs that were forcibly relocated because they were living in... Um, combat zones or they were li living in areas that were strategically significant to the Jewish uh, military that was f conducting and fighting a defensive war after they got aggressively attacked by five nations. Um, but, uh, but a lot of Arabs, also over 200,000 Arabs, said, we won't leave. We actually want to be Israeli. We want to be part of an Israel, uh, state of Israel. And they became Israeli Arabs today. So there's 25%, there's over a million of them now, all their descendants, are Arabs that didn't leave, that liked the Jews and decided to stay, and even some of them helped the Jews 
against the Arab armies. Um, but the Arabs that did leave were put into camps initially in most of the Arab countries and kept as political pawns. So as the Jews came into Israel and immediately were absorbed and given citizenship, these Arabs never were. And UNRWA was created, so the United Nations had um, the United Nations uh, High Commissioner for Refugees. So that's, you've probably heard of it. That is the United Nations Refugee Association for all global refugees, except one. Who do you think that is? The Palestinians. So it, this is very, very bizarre. So UNHCR, basically UNHCR recognizes right now that there's about 60 million refugees in the world. About as many now as around World War II because of ISIS and all the crazy stuff that's happened. Yet UNHCR reaches only about 20 million of those, 60 right now. And they're trying, they try to coordinate with other countries like Turkey to set up these camps and blah, blah, blah. Well, um, for reasons, that it's just very, very, very bizarre. But um, when, the, pal when the, the War of Independence happened and these Arabs became um, refugees, either at their own free will or some of them had to leave or so, you know, things happened, the United Nations created a separate humanitarian organization just for them. So UNHCR helps 20 million, and UNRWA was created to help 400,000, 400 to 700,000. But UNRWA, the, what, what UNRWA's qualifications of what makes a refugee, they changed it. This is really weird. This is not conspiracy stuff. They changed it. So for, uh, for the United Nations High Commission, if, a if somebody flees their home, the UNHCR, their primary thing is to care for that person, and if they can't uh, bring them back to their state or where they lived, they will find any place necessary to, so that they lose their refugee status. Integrate them into whatever country they can, they lose the refugee status, and they become a full citizen of wherever they are. Um, and then, also, their grandchildren, any descendants of that refugee, are no longer refugees of that person. UNRWA changed it. <coughs> UNRWA also even changed what qualified you as a refugee. Um, UNHCR had, I think, a generation. You had to live in a country for a generation to be considered a refugee. UNRWA changed that to two years. Why? Because most of the Arabs that fled, that became refugees, had hardly even lived in the land. Mm -hmm. So they changed it, and then they also changed um, the longevity. So UNRWA said, not only, so these immediate Arabs that are refugees, they're refugees, but also their descendants are all refugees. That's why the Palestinians are the only refugee population in the world that is multiplying and not shrinking. Every other refugee group is supposed to shrink, but not the Palestinians. That's how in 1948 you have 400 to 700,000 refu Arab refugees, and today you have 4 million. Palestinian refugees. So it's, it's perpetuating a problem. And, and UNRWA said the only way these people can lose their refugee status is if a Palestine is created. So they also then put the condition for them to lose their refugee status on something that is almost not going to happen because they always have terrible leadership that don't really want peace. They don't. And 1963 shows they don't, the PLO. They want the whole land. They want to kill every single Jew. And Jews won't allow that, so there will never be peace with those kinds of leadership. So UNRWA, UNRWA was supposed to be temporary, which is why they renew it every year. The United Nations, every year, 
looks at UNRWA and renews it and gives it more money. And there's no accountability. They, they dump, so for UNHCR, for every, um, for every one refugee, sorry, for every worker in UNHCR, there's 4,000 refugees. For every one worker, about 4,000. For every Palestinian, there's 122 UNRWA workers for them. Holy cow. And um, per capita, UNRWA gets twice, or no, more, 10 times more money sent to UNRWA to support the 4 million than to UNHCR to support 20, really, to 60 million. So 4 million are getting 10 times more money than the others. And most of that money, so, I mean, every Palestinian should be living in a, a huge, massive villa. Why are they not? Because the money, most of that money gets siphoned off into terrorist groups and siphoned off into the bank, personal bank accounts of their leadership of the Palestinian Authority, which is why when Yasser Arafat died, they found like over $4 billion in his accounts. And the whole world just siphons this because they're trying to fix this problem that they think, and they usually always blame it on Israel, which is what the recent United Nations resolutions and all this stuff that just came out is, it's all Israel's fault, it's all Israel's fault. And it's just backwards, and it's anti-Semitic. It's an anti-Semitic uh, spirit. But this is what Zuhair, Zuhair Moshin said. He was a Palestinian leader of the Syria-controlled um, uh, Asaka faction of the PLO between 71 and 79. And he gave this quote in 1977. And listen to what he says about pal the idea of Palestinians. The Palestinian people does not exist. The creation of a Palestinian state is only a means for continuing our struggle against the state of Israel for our Arab unity. In reality today, there is no difference between Jordanians, Palestinians, Syrians, and Lebanese. Only for political and tactical reasons do we speak today about the existence of a Palestinian people, since Arab national interests demand that we posit the existence of a distinct Palestinian people to oppose Zionism. For tactical reasons, Jordan, which is a sovereign state with defined borders, cannot raise claims to Haifa and Jaffa. While as a Palestinian, I can undoubtedly demand Haifa, Jaffa, Beersheba, and Jerusalem. However, the moment we reclaim our right to all of Palestine, we will not wait even a minute to unite Palestine and Jordan. So that's one of their own, of the PLO. And there's many, many more. So we're in a, a war on truth, a war on words. Um, you know, as a, as a nation, Israel wants to exist with secure borders in peace um, and with their neighbors. They have a peace treaty with Egypt and Jordan. Um, they have Arabs living within that are Israeli Arabs that have full citizenship rights. Israel has a serious issue of how to solve the issue of the Palestinian Arabs because they're not citizens and, but, and they won't. They can't lose their, their status as refugees, and, they're, and they're, it's, involved, it's very complicated, and Israel doesn't know and, uh, how to fully solve this, because in 1967, when they conquered this land um, that was initially within their borders, supposed to be, they inherited this problem. Um, they offered citizenship to many of the Arabs in Jerusalem. Many of them took it, but a lot of them rejected it. And then you have incitement and indoctrination within their own in, within the schools, I mean, mm. not a single Jewish school mm. do teachers teach the Jew Jewish children to hate Arabs. 
That's just not, it's, it's not there. Are there Arab, are there Jews that hate Arabs? Absolutely. There's racism in every single country in the world, and there are Jews that do terrible things at times, and they get convicted by the law um, and thrown in jail. But do, they do not indoctrinate their their children. Almost every Arab school, including UNRWA schools, see UNRWA does community centers and schools and, and refugee centers. Do they they allow in complete indoctrination, where you have little children that all they wish for is to kill Jews. And in this recent spat of, of terrorism, you had children as young as eight years old, Arab children running around with knives trying to stab people and hoping to die. They want to die. Like they'll run at armed police officers to try to get shot and killed because they want to be a shaheed. They want to be a martyr <clears throat> for Allah. And that's what they strive for. And then they interview the parents and their parents are like, this is the best thing that's ever happened to me that my child was killed. And now he is a shaheed with the, like, it's just, it's just horrific. The, the incitement that goes on and, the, and it, some Palestinian Arabs are brave enough and they break out of that and they speak out against it and they, many of them will have to, they do that living in the US or Britain and they have d fake names or they, they, you know, they get death threats all the time. Anybody who would ever speak, speak out in condemning their own people and I've, I've met some of these Palestinian Arabs that are incredible and love living in Israel and just hate the fact that their, their government and these terrorist organizations are just destroying their people's future and ruining every chance. You know, they never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. And they've been offered peace over and over and over. And they reject it over and over. Yet the world always blames Israel. It's, it's just remarkable. You know, like, and so it's, it's, a very, it's a very delicate, difficult situation and Israel's navigating through this. But in the midst of this, um, God's at work, and incredible things are happening, and we're seeing prophecy come true, and God is, you know, man to man, it's not like God lo loves a Jew better than he loves an Arab, but, there's the, but the covenant, he will be true, he says he will be true. And for the, for the Jewish uh, people today, for Israel, I mean, they just, they're completely fine with the idea of of Arabs living in their nation with full rights just as any Jew. They don't see any difference. And in fact, like they say over and over, if they would lay down their weapons, we'll gladly give them a state like that. Even though it's so painful, even though if that West Bank is their biblical heartland and that's like their beating heart, they would, they would give it for that. But Joel 3, 2 to 3, is an amazing thing because we know it's going to get tougher before it'll get better. And Joel... 3, 2 to 3, when you read that in context, the Messiah has come back and destroyed the armies that come against Israel and, and he sat up, set up his throne and he's, he brings the nations of the world, the governments, these leaders, the kings, into the Valley of Jehoshaphat. And the Valley of Jehoshaphat is the Kidron Valley and it's at the base of the Mount of Olives. So I've walked through there many times. You can see it if you go there. It's right there. And the scripture tells us that's the valley where this is the seat of judgment is going to happen. And it says that he'll bring these people into judgment over forcing Israel to divide the land. That's why what they're, that judgment, that particular judgment, nations are going to be held accountable and judged for forcing Israel to divide the land. So, what he, so he, can't, he can only be talking about an Israel that was already reborn. You know, like he's, this hasn't happened yet. Because A, Jesus hasn't come back, but also for 2,000 years, this is the first time that
that there's ever been in Israel that could be pressured enough to divide the land that would lead to Jesus sitting in judgment over the nation. Mm -hmm. And what we just saw, just saw a little while ago, was um, this uh, resolution, this crazy resolution done by the Security Council that declared all uh, Israel's building in, in Judea Samaria as illegal. But on top of that, so it blamed everything on Israel, and then on top of it, with no context, and then on top of it, it said that Israel needs to basically um, uh, dismantle all of this and divide Jerusalem and give this all this land and immediately create an Arab state or the state of Palestine. And they all voted for it, and the U.S. abstained, and then it's come out that the U.S. actually, because they can't vote against their own res uh, policy, they actually conspired with the Palestinians to draft this resolution knowing it would pass, but then they would abstain. And like, it's just like a gong show. But what we just saw there, um, you know, at this point, it's not going to happen because uh, the new administration coming in is just going to ignore it. And once again, that treaty custom, it's like if, you're, if everybody's doing it, then it becomes a, a binding. But the, the Trump administration will come in and say, forget it. So then that whole resolution will just fall to pieces because Trump will, he won't stand for it. So the, but what it shows us is that this was an attempt agreed on by all the nations to divide the land. This is what they're trying to do. So this is the direction that we're going. And um, Israel's given, given back land for peace, or tried to. They gave back the Ga Gaza in 2005, and they got 28,000 rockets and missiles and Hamas and terror tunnels. And they gave back Sinai, and they got peace with Egypt. Sinai was double the size of Israel, and they gave it away like that in, in, to make an agreement with and it's, they, take, they captured the land in 67 and immediately gave the Temple Mount, their most holiest site, they gave the keys to the Waqf of Jordan. So Jordan controls, basically, as a custodian, the Temple Mount. Like, and they also even try to give the land back. So it's, it's, it's an amazing thing, but um, you know, God's sovereign and he's in control. And this can look chaotic and it's, it's, there's a lot of sad stuff in it, but there's a lot of incredible things that are happening. And, um, yeah, so that's what I wanted to share with you. And if there's any questions, I mean, this is, this was a, a very quick way. <laughs> I didn't look at my notes. Other than that quote. <laughs> yeah. But, you, I mean, I wish I could do it all in context and spend the, the amount of time, because I, I jumped around a little bit. But when you see it all in a timeline and, it, and it's laid out for you, you, you begin to kind of really understand where we're at today. Mm -hmm. It'd be interesting to take a course on it, you know, mm -hmm. over several weeks to mm -hmm. really wrap your head around it. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, it's why, why it just seems so um, uh, difficult or overwhelming is because there is, people don't have the context. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and even in how <clears throat> um, it's taught, even in like academia, they're, they're in, they'll, they'll do courses on the con conflict of the Middle East and, and usually they'll focus three quarters of their time on this, as if this is the only conflict in the Middle East. It's, that, that's what, it's, it's interesting how Israel gets singled out in the attention. It's like, you know, they're under a magnifying glass and um, I, I believe 100% the only reason is because God chose it and, and the promises. But um, with, yeah, they'll do full courses on on this, but they'll only focus really um, 1948 to uh, uh, to present day. 
Um, and then usually 1967 to present day. They don't go into the, the context and the, the really the background. Um, and if they do, it's very, very biased. Um, so. Um, this is a probably way too simple of a question. What is jihad? Jihad? Like, jihadists. Right. And we don't think they're good, but what is it? What does it mean? Jihad, jihad in it, its most simplest form is holy war, but it has to, to um, it, that's, its primary focus was holy war. Its primary, it, it's to, for anything to further Islam as well. So it doesn't have to be by sword, it can come by pen. Was it an idea? Mm -hmm. Jihad is an idea? Yeah, well, yeah. So Muhammad talks about jihad in, in different ways, but his, his main way is the, the, the main application of jihad is physical conflict. It's, it's, that's why, like, that's the thing is not justifying the Crusades, because the Crusades are terrible, but we, we, we come down. Like, we crash down on the Crusades and like, this is outrageous. How could these Christian armies just go into these lands and do awful things? And that's right. They were Christian, at least by name, armies that did go into these lands. It just kind of out of nowhere, right? But what we don't understand is prior to the First Crusade, Islam had been invading Europe for 500 years. Like, for no reason. Just like literally crossing the Mediterranean and attacking Spain and like, pushing in Spain, crossing the train, attacking Sicily and Italy and pushing up. Like, it's a, there, it's a conquest mindset. Like, Muhammad raised up these armies and he, it wasn't good enough to stop with Saudi Arabia. They ethnic, they, they slaughtered over 250,000 people in Saudi Arabia. And that wasn't good enough. Then they keep expanding. The only reason, why, why do you expand? It's, it's, it's an imperial mindset of complete conquest. That's the only reason that you do this. And that's, but it's not, that's not just an ideology of war, it's actually ingrained into their religion. So it's a religious, it's something you strive for as a religious action, is to attack. Um, but, it, but Muhammad also is clever, he called it war, he described war and he quoted it as war is deceit. So whenever a Muslim is in a land and they're outnumbered or weak, they should further Islam by promoting that it's all peace. And they should further Islam to, but if you promote it peace, you encourage people to convert. You encourage people to let down their guard and get comfortable with it. And then um, you either conquer that nation by the pen or, or you conquer it by the sword. How do you conquer it by the pen? Well, by promoting it, getting converts, and then getting Sharia law into the judicial system of those nations and slowly turning. And then getting the, the, the best one would be then getting like presidents or kings or people that are Muslims and getting a Muslim majority. Immigration, there's a thing called hijra, and hijra is jihad by immigration. So it's, so it's like- Say that again, it's jihad by immigration. Yeah, so it, jihad is anything that furthers Islam, and, and by furthering Islam, conquers an area for Islam. So in Muhammad's day, it was all done by the sword, and they had these crazy armies, and they took on the Byzantines, and they just conquered like ridiculously. Like if you watch it, um, the expansion of, of Islam, they just were unstoppable because they were promised. Muhammad promised he was making it up as he went along. Really, he promised them if you die in combat, if you die in battle, you will get everything in heaven. And it's funny that all the things you get in heaven, many of the things you get in heaven are against Islamic law on earth. So it's like, you know, you're not supposed to be, in, you're not supposed to even drink alcohol, you're not, you, you're not, 
by doctrinally speaking, you know, outside of having wives, you're not supposed to have like just like harlots and all of this stuff. But in in heaven, you have endless celestial sex, and you get river, there's rivers of alcohol, and like you get all of this stuff. So if you die in combat, that's what you get. Um, if you don't die in combat, you get all you can pillage the places and, t and take wives and do whatever. So you win both ways. And so his armies were just like insane. They were just like like in their mentality, they could. That's why they were so successful. Is because the other armies cared about their lives. The people cared about their lives, and Muhammad was able to influence uh, uh, his soldiers to not value their lives. That everything is predestined. There is no free will, and you you are alive to further Allah, Allah's message around the, for the world to take the world. Um, if you can't do it by the sword, because now it's modern weaponry, right? Islam can't compete with America with nuclear weapons and modern armies. Like, it's still the Middle East and Muslim countries, most of them are quite poor. The ones that are very wealthy are, have somewhat strong relationships with the West, somewhat. You know, they kind of double deal, but, but still, the Middle East still today is quite poor the Muslim countries, because Sharia law, it just stunts the growth of a, country, of a, of a people group. It really does. Where you, where you have any nation that has zero rights for women and zero rights for minorities and other faith groups, I mean, they, they never progress, right? You never, they never, all the nations of the world that are wealthy have full rights for women and full rights for minorities and other faiths and like mm -hmm. everybody. Is that what Sharia law is? Sharia law, yeah, it stunts that. Sharia, Islam is 100% chauvinistic. It's all, it all benefits the man. A woman isn't even regarded as a human being. She's basically half a man. So uh, a man could rape a woman, and if nobody else saw, she can't. Doesn't matter. Yeah, but, she go to the. But there can't be a man without a woman. Did right. Have birth. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I don't understand. Like, it's it's yeah like it's 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 and not and that this these mind this these ideologies uh, of course aren't don't infect every little every Muslim in the world because not every Muslim even knows about this, and um. Uh, a huge vast of Muslims today have uh, been, never been born in a Sharia law country. So they've never grown up with it. So, um, you know, if ISIS came here to Canada, they would probably kill most of the Muslims in Canada because they would consider them apostates or not Muslim enough. They'd probably kill most of them. So, um, so jihad is like to further anything. Um, but where you're weak, it's you, you do it by the pen or you do it by immigrating because if the population See, that's, what, that's one of the, the um, um, strategies of... So Israel declared a right of return because it's their ancestral homeland. So anybody can become an Israeli. You just have to go through ho the hoops, which is difficult, like some other countries. It's not, you know, it's not an easy thing. But if you're a Jew, because it, uh, uh, this is a nationalistic law, um, it's not meant to be racist. It's just this is, this is your ancestral homeland. So if you're a Jew, you can apply for citizenship and you will become a citizen. Um, well, and the Jews call that the right of return. Well, the Palestinians in the Arab world caught on to that. So then they have declared, well, we want a right of return. We want a right of return for our refugees. But now they have a problem with the refugees because it's compounded. So it, to four million, the, the, the actual people out of that group that are legitimate would actually have a case as a refugee is less than 500. So the people living today that would actually still could be classified as a refugee would be about 500 people. 
But they're trying to say, well, you have, Israel has to allow all four and a half million of us back. Well, the only reason they have said that in their strategy is because they want to force Israel or force the world to push Israel to allow that so that the population shifts. So then Jew, Israel would cease to be a Jewish state. They want to eradicate that. That would be their first step. So that's, why that's the only reason why you see Palestinians waving keys. No other refugee groups in the world wave keys. Everybody gets on with their lives, even if injustice has happened to them. And you know, Jews and Israelis, they're not, they're not perfect people. They, injustice happens, bad things happen. It's, but at the end of the day, it's like, are you going to wave a key for the rest of your life? And they wave the keys as a symbol of, this was my, the key to my house. That's what the, the key is, stands for. And they still do that today. At every single rally, you'll see these keys. And it's like they're living in the past, and they will never, ever, as long as you're waving a key, you'll never have your, uh, a nation, you'll never have a state, you'll never have self-determination. Mm-hmm. And because if they have the right to wave a key and we should bend the knee to them, well, then every single people group in the world can wave a key. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it's, it's idiocracy, it really is. And, it, and it's a, a sh- huge shame, because I believe, maybe not a majority, but a large percentage of those that would be Palestinian Arabs are just caught in a situation mm-hmm. with no hope, they can't speak up, if they do, they'll, yeah. like in Gaza, they have no rights. If anybody speaks out against, like Hamas is a terror, they're like the Nazis, they, they run Gaza. Anybody that speaks out against them would be an agitator, thrown in prison. Um, the Operation Protective Edge, Hamas did uh, a street executions of almost a thousand of their own people, like, like dragging them out the streets in the head. Um, they don't. They do like these kangaroo courts, and they kill people all the time, claiming that they talk with the Israelis, whatever that means. They throw people into prison with no um, no courts. They torture their own people. They do just horrific things, and they're like this mafia mob, and they siphon all this money, and they um, like just a. It's 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 and and so all these people are caught in this. So of course. You know, people get angry. Well, where are you going to channel your anger? Mm. Well, uh, so ma- many of these Gazans, they of course they blame Israel. So it's like well, they got to blame somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, but like you look at this. So Hamas is in Palestine. Is well, there is no Palestine. I'll just say that okay. Hamas is in Gaza. Palestine is a, uh, Palestine as a country, as a state, has never existed. It's a political okay. term. Okay. So there is no Palestine. There's nowhere on the map that there, it's called Palestine. Yeah. And, and there's never been. Uh, nations, there's never been a king of Palestine. There's never been a currency of Palestine. There's no language of Palestine. Like, what makes an ethnic group is, like, uh, is language, culture, customs, food, history, shared history. Those, those kinds of things make you an ethnic group. Do they even have, they like, have passports? Like, yeah, but they're not recognized. So, so the passports it's like... What? Could they leave? Yeah. They can't really leave Gaza because Gaza is under a military blockade by Israel, a legal military blockade because of, the, of Hamas and weaponry. Um, if somebody wants to leave, leave Gaza, and Gaza is also controlled by Egypt and Israel, so there's two borders. If somebody wants to leave Gaza, they have to apply to leave, and some people can leave. And they, there's a whole huge thing that they've got to go through. Um, Judea Samaria, the West Bank, they have um, ID cards. So if um, uh, many people from the West Bank work in Israel proper, so there's um, so they they'll have an ID card, and so they'll they'll have it. They'll, the reason why they want to work in Israel is because they'll get paid a normal salary, 
if they work in the West Bank, they'll get paid a quarter of what they would pay. Because their own people rip them off. Like, they wouldn't pay them a full, like... So that's why they want to work in Israel. They know it's better in Israel. But unfortunately, because of terrorism, and um, people have tried to, like... Everything from men have, men have dressed up like women with bombs under their things to they have tried to smuggle weapons and ambulances and smuggle... So because of all these things, it sets it up that Israel... I mean, how else do you maintain a border with people that aren't your citizens, but they have, they want a form of autonomy, they want to work, so it's like they're kind of non-residents, it's, it's like a strange situation, well, they give them ID cards, but then there's a, a segment of that population that they'll use anything to try to like smuggle things in to kill Israelis and to hurt people. Well, then you have to set up checkpoints, you have to set up, uh, and, and those are inconvenient, those uh, make it difficult for honest people to, to work. Like they are. I mean, yeah. yes, they're not like they're not beautiful. The Israelis don't like that. It's like how many nineteen-year-olds want to put on, you know, like a military out, uh, uniform with a gun and and check IDs all day, mm-hmm. and and a lot of Palestinians will feel humiliated. Mm-hmm. Um, it's profiling, but it works and it saves lives, and it's uncomfortable and it's like yeah and and but but where's the source? Where's it coming from? The anti-Israel people will say, well, this is all unjust, so Israel should take down these checkpoints, it's racist, blah, blah, blah. And that's like the far left, kind of the liberal. But, and Israel would like, they would love, and those, and those checkpoints are by legal, by law, <clears throat> and a checkpoint can always be moved. So some checkpoints are taken down. Mm-hmm. Um, the security barrier that was built, security fence, part of it is uh, about 5% is cement, the 95% is fencing. Um, that was created uh, to stop suicide bombers, and it was created in the Second Intifada during the terror war, and it stopped 98% of terrorism. Do, do Israelis like to look out their window at Bethlehem and see a, a cement wall there? And no, but it's necessary to save lives, and, it, and there's still areas of entry and exit, and it's actually only cement in um, dividing Arab villages or towns from Israel proper. It's only dividing. It's not surrounding. It's, it's only dividing um, uh, villages or towns that have been um, jihadist mentality and, and active uh, as uh, terrorists. So sniping, bombing. Like if, if a town has sent their people to do that stuff, then they'll, if they're in the, like the West Bank, Judea, Samaria, um, with the, the security barrier, it'll be cement. You'll see it. But so 95% of it is just chain fence, and, and it has, it's electric, not to electrocute someone, but if you grab it, it sends a signal to the Israeli army, and they'll know exactly where someone grabbed it. Mm. So it's electric in that way. Mm. And, but there's still gates, so if people, like farmers, have land on both sides, <clears throat> they get special ID cards, and they can cross. Mm. I mean, it's, it's a system that works to prevent death and mayhem and security. It's not a beautiful system. And it it's, it agitates and it's inconvenient and it but when you look at these like these pictures this is why like and you think just when people see so the anti-Israel people don't really logically step back and just think okay what would ha- what would I do if if this is in my country so these are children Israeli children in bomb shelters they have regular school drills about incoming missiles this is from Sturot which is a village near a Jewish village near Gaza that. Since 2005, it's had 28,000. So 28,000 rockets and missiles have been shot out of Gaza. These aren't like pot rockets. These are some of these have 70 kilo, 70 kilogram warheads, which, which would completely blow up this entire house. Like these are like devastating armaments. 
and, and supplied by Iran, <laughs> a lot of them. And so out of 28,000 missiles, 8,000 of them have hit Starot. And they have children that are 15 years old that still sleep with their parents. They have ch there's children there that even when there's nothing happening, they can't sleep anywhere unless it's in a bomb shelter. They're like PTSD, like the yeah, whole time. The whole PTSD, time. Yeah. The whole time. They have a, a huge issue is bedwetting. Mm. Like, these are like, they have more, the more psychologists and counselors are going to Starot than any other place in, in Israel. Yet the people of Starot will not leave because it's like, this is our home. Um, look at this. Israeli, Israeli psychologists developed this song to help children deal with PTSD 